Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Showing your good side has many rewards. Become a donor at Griffles Plasma, and your plasma can make life-saving medicines. Millions of people depend on these medicines to live healthier, more active lives. And every time you donate with Griffles Plasma, you're compensated. You can receive over $500 the first month. Learn more about plasma and how it helps people at GrifflesPlasma.com. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. And it says we're live. All right, guys. I guess we are live. I guess this is episode 38. It's really happening here. Um, so, hey, everyone, welcome to the team house with uh, Dave Park. I'm Jack Murphy. We're here with our guest tonight, Patrick O'Donnell. Uh, Patrick is a special operations historian. He is the author of, what, 11 books? Yeah, I've got 11 published books. I've actually finished the 12th, and I'm working on the 13th now. All right, so another another one in the hopper coming at you, and then he's got another one in the shoot after that. So very prolific author, uh, someone who has interviewed uh, living members of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, many World War II veterans. Um, I mean, he's written even about contemporary special operations. He has been a embedded historian with the Marine Corps uh, during Operation Iraqi Freedom in Fallujah. So uh, Pat really has a depth of experience. We're really excited to have him on the show today and to discuss some of these historical uh, units. You know, we kind of um, tend to um, operate on a more contemporary basis, interviewing, you know, people from, you know, our generation, global war on terror uh, guys and, and gals. Um, but it's really cool to talk about the historical aspects of this and where it all grew out of, where it all came from. Because I think when people hear about these things like the, the Bin Laden raid, the Baghdadi raid, or even the killing of Soleimani, some of these different incidents, they think like that just happened. 
Uh, but actually that grew out of a progression of historical events and capabilities that were built up by the military and by the intelligence community over decades and decades. And uh, you know, Pat is, is uniquely qualified to illuminate that uh, for all of us. I wanna get to that real quick. Um, I just wanna talk for a moment about our sponsors. Uh, one of the sponsors of our show is Ned. Ned is a wellness company. They develop a number of different uh, hemp-based products. This one is hemp oil that I've been using for uh, almost a month now. And it's really worked for me. It's really helped me sleep better, sleep deeply in a way that I wasn't before. Um, they make another, a couple other products as well, some chapstick. Uh, they make uh, some different kinds of like body lotion. So there's a number of different products that they make and uh, they're really committed to making high quality products, not just CBD products, but other wellness products as well. And um, I was pretty skeptical of them initially, but I've had a good experience with it. And, uh, and actually, I'm going to ask Ned to send something to Dave as well so that he can uh, give it a try. I, uh, I tried to, after Jack had received it and he was starting using, I tried to get like uh, some of it. He's like, my precious. So, yeah, I'm. I took I took off with it uh, when I when I left the city. I'll talk to them and ask them if they can send you something, Dave. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, my sleep aid so far has been uh... <laughs> okay. Okay, so so the hemp oil is much more healthy for you than using liquor to sleep. That, that's a perfect case in point, Dave. Right there. Me, Ned. Yeah, yeah. You need Ned in your life. Yes. Um, and for our viewers, there is a special discount. You can get 15% off your first purchase and you get free shipping. If you go to their website, it's helloned.com, H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash team house. And that will give you the uh, discount. Um, and then just the other uh, sponsor I want to talk about real quick. It's a local veteran owned business. Um, it is called High Speed Daddy. And they make a number of different products like lunch pails, uh, diaper bag. Uh, it, it's kind of using tactical nylon to sew, you know, everyday products that, you know, even regular guys like myself will use. Um, I really enjoy the, the Ranger green bag lunch pail that they make. And uh, for those of you who listen to the team house, there's also a special discount for you. You can get 10% off your order. If you go to highspeeddaddy.com, take a look at it order what you like and you'll get 10% off your purchase using that uh, code. Or, I'm sorry, you'll have to enter the discount code um, to get the 10% off at highspeeddaddy.com. The code is actually my name, it's J-A-C-K. So you throw that in there and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So with no further ado, Pat, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. It's an honor and a pleasure, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll kick it over to Dave since you guys, uh, you know, have a, a pre-existing relationship. Uh, and maybe you actually want to tell the story first about how you two met. Uh, Patrick, please. Sure. Um, I was working on a book called Operative Spies and Saboteurs. And this is the first operational and oral history of the OSS. Um, I'm a board member of the OSS Society. I'm also their official historian. And um, I started work on the book in about 2000, and I was interviewing anybody that was alive that was operational with the OSS. And the OSS, for those of you that may not know, is really one of the most dynamic organizations ever created. And it was created quickly and overnight. And with whole cloth, they had to create an, a national intelligence organization, the first, 
as well as special operations. And this is an aspect of OSS that's really important. Um, the, there is the Jedbergs that most people know about, but there's also the operational groups. And these are the kind of precursor to the, the Green Beret um, A-teams. There's also the uh, precursor to the Navy SEALs, which was the OSS Maritime Unit, as well as US Army uh, Combat Diving, um, PSYOPs. There is uh, counterintelligence and there's an intelligence aspect as well as uh, research and analysis, which was really important. This, this, the OSS was the first to take modern analytical methods to take raw data and turn it into actionable intelligence. They, they harnessed the power of university experts around the United States that were experts in specific areas and, and put them to work on the problems of taking down the Third Reich and, and uh, as well as the uh, Japanese in the Pacific. Um, and there was a research um, there was a research arm that developed special weapons and, uh, and other, uh, there's a photographic arm. What makes the OSS unique compared to British um, similar operations is everything was placed under one roof. So there were no silos. And uh, that allowed a, a, a great deal of cross fertilization. But the greatest aspect of the OSS were its people. They were all unique and dynamic, and they were given a lot of latitude to uh, to, to basically um, think out of the box and come up with the things that we know today. The, the, the greatest legacy of the OSS is, is many of the things that the tactics and technology and techniques that we know today. Um, and my books are all, um, I drill deeply down into the weeds and the reason why I met Dave was because I was researching the hand-to-hand um, -hand combat aspect of the OSS, Fairburn fighting techniques, and, and Rex Applegate, who used you know different aspects of, with firearms. And I was researching this at the National Archives, and I ran into another mutual friend that talked about how there was a um, a dojo in New Jersey that was run by Carl Sesteri that was actually using the Fairburn fighting techniques and gutter fighting. And I went up and I went there many, many times, learned everything how to use a garrote to, to knife fighting, to, you know, pure hand-to-hand -hand combat. And, you know, it you know, gave me that ability to, to write about what I had actually done as well. And then Dave and I had, had known each other as friends ever since. Yeah, yeah, we met there. Uh, I mean, an interesting side note is Carl. And you guys have had Clint Sporman on too. Yeah, that? we had Clint Sporman, who was who was uh, like Carl Sestari's premier student. And yes, kind of confidant and, and and friend and everything. And um, one of the things that people don't like people don't know is that like Carl used to go to national archives all the time, and the way he came about discovering all this was through the National Archives going through all the OS, like uncovering all this stuff and, Apple, and actually going out and he met with Applegate uh, before uh, he passed away. And, you know, um, yeah. So it was very, very authentic, you know, in terms of, and, and it was very basic stuff. It was very, very simple. Gross motor movements. Yeah. It was all about gross motor movements. And, and Carl, uh, you know, was really quite remarkable. He had the ax hand that was literally calcified because he would take his hand and pound it on an iron or steel pipe yeah. and smack it so hard that it was like a bone. It, yeah, it was brutal, brutal. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so that's how, that's how Pat and I met many, many moons ago. I mean, that was- 2002 maybe? 
Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. Many moons ago. So, um, and, and he had a very small, but very like, uh, I, I don't want to say loyal following, uh, but very dedicated following guys who, I mean, and they'd go out there and just beat the crap out of each other. Like every weekend, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I was effective. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, please continue. So anyways, we met, but it, the, uh, I guess the point of that, of that discussion is that I use primary sources and I go into the weeds. I also, I visit the places that I write about and, you know, one book I actually was, I participated in Fallujah in a Marine rifle platoon, yeah. but so the, the stuff that I write is, is very intimate and personal. It's, it's basically untold stories in most cases that are built around characters, main characters that, um, in many cases could be a movie or a TV series. That's kind of a lot of the stuff that I, they've, they've been optioned and such. And uh, it's kind of one of the secondary uh, objectives or indirect reasons why I, I write some of the stuff. But it's also to really honor our history and uncover our history. And that's been my main focus since I was, I began, um, my, my interest in this stuff began when I was about four years old. Yeah, please, the story, as we like to say, because yeah. comic book geeks. I was obsessed with, with military stuff, and I was dragging my parents to Civil War battlefields and Rev War battlefields. It wasn't the other way around. And my father would say, you know, you've been to one battlefield, you, you know, you've seen them all. I'm like, no, Dad, we got to go to another one. <laughs> Where did and you grow was, up at? So did you have ready access to these battlefields? No, we traveled. And, and we, we, we would go on every weekend, we would go places and it would be either in Ohio or outside of Ohio and, or the East Coast. And we would go to places and we, you know, it, it was always a deep dive into history. And um, it wasn't something that was forced upon me. I, I was obsessed when I was a kid. And, um, you know, I went to school obsessed and, uh, you know, people saw that uh, some, you know, would poke fun at me, but I was, I was, I was really obsessed with history. And, um, when, as soon as I got out of college, I was, I started interviewing World War II veterans. Now, did and you, did you major in history? I assume I, I was a history major, but I was also, um, my, um, my ex-wife, uh, my ex-father-in-law was like, you know, my, she wants the best. And so I became a, a finance major as well. <laughs> right. So, Right. Uh, I could learn, earn a living either way right. and um, got out of school. And uh, the first thing I started doing as a hobby every weekend is I was interviewing World War II vets. And it began with the 82nd Airborne Division. I was interviewing um, Pathfinders from the 82nd. This is in 1992 or 93 before like Tom Brokoff or anybody that had any kind of interest. And I was amassing these oral histories and uh, it would all be um, everybody that I would interview would have a reference to somebody else. So I wasn't getting people that were professional veterans, so to speak, that wanted to tell me their story. Mm -hmm. It was somebody that was, that was referred to me. And I developed a deep friendship with many of the men that are, that I've written about. I've interviewed probably uh, over 4,000 uh, veterans from world war one all the way through Afghanistan and Iraq in the Korean War. Um, most of them have been with a focus on elite or special operations in units in one way or another, or their precursors. And, um, you know, the airborne was the 82nd led to the 101st 
And then I was interviewing the obscure airborne units, the 517, the 509, the 551. These are the guys that were attached to the 82nd or 101st. And they had an absolutely fascinating story that I was, I, I got obsessed with. And um, I was interviewing these guys. And then it went to the Rangers. I, re I interviewed every single um, Ranger battalion and, you know, one through six, and then Merrill's Marauders, Task Force Mars. And I would go to their reunions. I'd go to, you know, 15 or 20 reunions a year and just interview everybody. And I interview them on the phone. And I, you know, I, I got to know these men um, as a friend. And um, I also sort of got into a different type of interview with most of them. They had never talked about the war in many cases, including to their family members. And I was, I kind of probed into that hidden war. And this is the hidden war of World War II where many of these men had suffered from PTSD and were, you know, recovering from it or still never had dealt with it. And um, this was, you know, really shocking stuff that was coming out. It wasn't just um, an after action report um, on the drop zone. It would be, yeah, we shot a prisoner and what, you know, the, the, the impact that had on my life. Right. It was, and, it was powerful stuff. And in a way, I mean, right now we think of shooting a prisoner as a war crime, but at that point in time, you're talking about capturing somebody behind enemy lines and you can't, it's, it's two or three people. They can't release them because they can't let their, their presence be known. Right. right. I mean, they, they really have no option. In many cases, it was a situation of no option and there were orders to do it. Yeah. You know, the, the sergeant would say, look, go take care of the prisoners, bring them down to the POW cage. And that, that was a code oh, I for, see. you know. Okay. Um, in some cases that didn't happen. I mean, it, it all depends. But in, in many cases too, in some of those cases, men were haunted by those memories. Yeah. I, and, I thought you were talking more like the OSS, but you're talking about-, about uh, not, There were not many instances of, of, of actually the OS, of, of that with the OSS. It was okay. more, there were other, there were other units. Um, that, you know, I mean, when you're an airborne op, it's an airborne op, you're deep behind the lines too. Yeah. And it's a fluid situation. It's not like you set but up- that's not, I mean, I don't want to sit here and generalize something. Sure. That's not the case either. It didn't happen all the time, but it was something that happened, excuse me, every now and then. And it was something that these men were haunted by. It was a ghost for many of them. So when you were interviewing, so you started out with the 82nd and then went on to the 101st Lake. Did it just kind of start, I mean, were you just doing it sort of out of curiosity and a hobby at that time? Did you have like books in mind? Did you want No, to I didn't have it? any books. In, I didn't have any books in mind at all. And, and the sort of the natural progression for, for me was um, the internet was just coming into its existence at this time. And this is 1992, 93, 94. And I created a virtual museum called the dropzone.org. It's still out there. And instead of artifacts, I made the men's oral histories part of the artifact and part of the story. And what made it very unique for the time was um, I made it a virtual community. So I was literally using email to, you know, listserv to, to, to solicit and, get, and gain um, what I called e-histories. That was another aspect of this project. And I was, you know, using that as a tool to also um, gather some of their stories. And we put them online and it was a tremendous success. I had uh, just a lot of uh, media attention from the project because it was the first time that anybody had ever done that with World War II. Uh, it was the first oral history project. I coined the term e-history and everything else. 
And the guys were like saying, you know, what's next? Are you going to write a book? And I didn't even think of that. I just, I wasn't sure. And uh, the next thing I know, I, um, I sort of went down that path and it was not, it was not a, um, it was a serendipitous path for me. I had amassed an enormous amount of um, oral histories and contents online and the project was very successful. And um, I, I went to um, a friend of mine who was a, a, um, a publicist at Penguin Putman and I said, hey, how can I, what do I need to do to get published? And I figured that she might be my kind of inter editor. And instead she said to me, um, you need to go buy a book called Literary Agents. <laughs> I'm like, gee, thanks. Oh yeah, that's right, yeah. So I went to Borders, which was still in existence at that time. And I bought this, went up to the shelf, pulled out the thing. And it was like this giant, like, Bible looking thing. Writer's Digest, right? Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And it, it had 4,500 names in it and addresses. And they tell you right up front, you're supposed to write a query letter. And uh, there's a very elaborate process. You can't just contact these people. I didn't do that. I just opened the book. I went to like the last page and I saw... The one guy had like a little snippet that says special operations. Boom. I, I called him up. And uh, I, I said, well, what do you think about this idea of an oral history of special operations or, or rangers and airborne? Like, that's amazing. Nobody's ever done that. And um, just hung up and I'm like, w- walked away and I didn't bother with it. And uh he called me back. He's like, where's your book proposal? And um, I said, well, look, give me a month. I'll get it to you. I had no idea how to write a book proposal. <laughs> <laughs> Went back to Borders, looked at how to write a book proposal, wrote a book proposal, sent it in. About a week later, the guy's like, this is amazing. <laughs> sent it in to, um, we had, we sent it in to Simon Schuster, Random House and Henry Holt and probably 50 other major houses, didn't hear anything for a few weeks, a month or two. And the next thing I know, I had three major offers. That's incredible. I was 29 years old 
And um, they, they said to me, you know, it was Simon Schuster, like, you're going to be the youngest his published historian in the country. And I wrote this book, which was a national bestseller called Beyond Valor. We still, I think- hey, Pat, hold it up in front of your face. It's not on the yeah. camera. Yeah, Beyond Valor. Yeah. Well, Beyond yeah. Valor, it, it, it went through, um, I don't know, I, I think about 25 reprints. And it's, and it's an oral and um, operational history of the Airborne, um, which is, it's a very personal book to me um, and the stories of the men that are in it. And it's their story from the Dieppe raid uh, where there were 50 American Rangers that participated with the commandos and, um, and the Airborne and the Rangers and it's their stories. And it's, it's chronological, but it's, it's kind of like a castle wall where the oral histories are the stones in the wall, but they all fit together to tell a narrative story of what these units did, which is really extraordinary during the war. Especially because I think, and I, I'm interested to hear your, your thoughts on it. I think, especially as a military historian, what you're saying about them all being intertwined and they're all stepping uh, blocks that fit together like Legos or something, that these are all people who existed within a military chain of command working towards a, a common objective uh, in these different military operations. And, uh, and it's chrono it is history. Like there, there are events happening that you can really put your finger on. And I imagine as a historian, that must be really fascinating to see how all that comes together. It's not like maybe other areas of history where you really get into this sort of Rashomon construct of like, what happened? Did it happen? Did it not happen? Like, no, no, we know these guys jumped into Normandy and then you put all the details together. Yeah, uh, I put in the details, uh, but I put it in a level that nobody had ever seen before. It, right. It's not the the dry uh, after action report or it's, the- It's not the meta, the meta story of history. It's the personal account of what's actually- Yeah, it's, it's the enlisted men or in some case, in the off officers that really did stuff level. And it's, it's powerful really yeah. powerful stuff. Yeah. And that um, was my first book, which if you go to C-SPAN, um, C-SPAN uh, History TV, what I did with all my books is I'd, I'd have a reunion. And we had, an, my first book signing was a reunion of all of these men. And there were 300 at this Borders. And it was just an awesome event. And we had, um, the legends of D-Day present in the Battle of the Bulge, like Luis Mendez of the 508. You know, he's, he was the colonel of the, of, the, um, of the battalion and then later the regiment. And he was there. And one of his pathfinders, we found out, had never received his bronze star from this Normandy jump. And at that, re at that, at that reunion, um, he pinned it on um, this private from the war. Did he know that he had won it? He, he did. Okay. But, but it was a special thing. He didn't know that his battalion commander oh, or wow. his regimental commander would be there. And we, you know, and what I did is also, I, I had these guys tell their stories live that day. And it was incredible. I mean, it was, it was a situation where I had the chaplain from the 504 in the Wall River crossing um, tell the story about the boats in his, you know, I was, you know, saying, um, hail or our father is they're crossing and there's MG 42 machine gun bullets ripping apart the, these canvas boats in the water. 
it's just it's amazing stuff that's incredible do, do you notice any big differences between you know what we've come to know as the greatest generation and, and today's generation of soldiers and and you know war fighters so to speak um well what i can i can i can talk about um i can't necessarily talk so much about what the, the, the most current generation, even though I, I can, I think to some degree, but I definitely can talk about the generation that was in Fallujah that I was with. Mm -hmm. And that was what I would call the next greatest generation. Those men that I was with in the Marine Corps and the army uh, at the beginning, um, prior to the battle were really exceptional. And especially the Marine Corps, I was with um, Lima Company 3-1 uh, during the, in the assault force during the battle. And that was just, those guys, I, I'm still, they were still all my close friends and, you know, we go to reunions and everything. And it's just like those, they're just salt of the earth and they're incredible. And, and you, know, you know, we got, we had guys that literally like hid their wounds to go back for their brothers. It, it, it's an, it's a really, uh, it, it really and you wrote about that in your book. We were one. Yes. Invited in that, which yes. is, uh, which is a, a phenomenal book. It's, this is my fourth book. It's called We Were One. Uh, hold it up. It's in, hard, it's in hard cover. Yeah. This is on the, um, the commandants. It was on the commandants required reading list for enlisted men. Um, and that's, you know, really quite high honor. Um, it's about eight best friends that were in uh, Lima Company 3-1 um, in 1st Platoon. And um, of the eight, only three uh, survived this battle. Uh, main character of this book, wow. Michael Hanks. Um, we were ambushed by uh, Chechens in, in, in one of the house-to-house -house, uh, fighting uh, scenarios. It was a complex ambush. They drew us into the house. And, um, you know, that's Corporal Hanks was very heroic, went in. And um, there was an RPK on the other side. And um, he was hit right in front of me. And an RPK, those, an RPK for those who don't know is, is an automatic, it's a machine gun. Yeah. It's and uh, so we dragged him out of the, the firefight. And, um, you know, that was just one incident of many um, in that situation. And, and Pat, you were, you were deep. I was right that. there. Yeah. I was, how, I was, how, did, I was how, did that, how did that come together, Pat? Because I was looking at your photographs and I was like, oh shit, this guy was in the Marines too. And I was reading a little bit deeper and I was like, whoa, no, wait a second. This guy no, was a civilian was, historian. I was a civilian historian. Yeah. I, I completely volunteered to go to Iraq. I paid my own way. Um, I had all the proper uh, clearances. I had the um, um, public affairs, the Pentagon. I had the battalion commander sign off. I had everybody sign off. I went over with the army. I went over with the 509 parachute infantry battalion, which is the um, op four down in Fort Polk, Louisiana. And they train our guys uh, they're, they're, you know, I mean, during the cold war, they were acting as, as Russians and Cubans um, in the war on terror. They're, they're acting as Al Qaeda and other, you know, Jaysh Muhammad and, you know, everything else that's out there. And so I went down there to, um, to, to, to just basically be, you know, the, the guy that records the interviews and, um, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Griffith, who was, um, his nickname was Mad Max. And uh, his whole deal was, he, he's like, 
what's your code name and what's your alias? And I'm like, okay, I'm an Al Jazeera reporter <laughs> running with the moosh. So they gave me a whole man dress and a, a fake ID. And I went into the, <laughs> you know, the whole Fort Polk compound with the miles gear and everything. And they're like, Oh, this will be a great experience for you before you go to Iraq. And they were expecting me to die within like minutes. Right. And I, I survived the entire exercise unscathed. And they're like, you can do it the whatever the fuck you want, my unit. <laughs> You've got the qualities of great soldiers. This was a quote, you know how to survive. And that was true. I got, when I went to Iraq, you know, I just, I, I went through a, a lot of different scenarios. When we first went over with 509, they were outside of um, the biop um, and it was Colonel Milley with the 10th Mountain, third, uh, I, wanna, I was pretty sure it was third brigade. Um, and he, that, he was in charge of that, uh, that section. Um, and then I'll never forget the first time I went there. It was like I went, he had dinner with me. He's like, what are you here for? And I'm like, to record the story of what's going on on the ground because nobody else is doing it as a historian. Right. And he was, he was a, he's a very uh, shrewd and a very, he's a, he's a brilliant guy. And I, I'm really glad that we have him as uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Um, and he, uh, he's also a historian and we had an excellent conversation and I'll never forget his, his trailing comments were Fallujah will be the Gettysburg of this war. And um, anyways, I was all excited. I thought the 509 would get, it was going to be my story. And it turned out about two weeks before Fallujah or three, they were sent to the green zone in the guard towers and the entire story kind of, that story kind of collapsed in terms of Fallujah. But it won't make a long story short, I had to talk my way into a helicopter and I, I begged and pleaded and I got my way into Fallujah. And I was with the, I was initially with recon and all the shaping operations in Fallujah. And then I was with the assault force 3-1. And, and for, for our viewers who have not read, we, uh, uh, we were one. Um, and, and Pat, I noticed this when we, when we talked about it uh, after, after the events. It, it was something deeply personal to you. Like, the, the, like it, it had a very yeah, lasting I mean, effect I, on you. It did. Um, I, this, book, this book is a, a relic of the battle. And what I mean by that is every one of these oral histories were done either at night when we went firm um, after clearing houses all day or it was a month later in um, where we were doing group interviews where everybody remembered every single element of every one of these ambushes. This book, the, the highest compliment that I could ever get is from all the guys because everything is in here is completely true. There's right. no embellishment. It's all oral history, but it's woven into a narrative of these eight best friends in their story um, from the beginning of, of um, of Iraq through Fallujah. But Pat, I think what people need to know is that you weren't sitting at the FOB waiting no, to come. No, I was, I was in uniform. I didn't want to get killed because uh, they thought I was some sort of civilian and I was armed and, and clearing houses and everything you else. You were elbow deep. Yeah, then I was, it was doing that just to survive, but it was like a situation where we were all trying to survive because we went from a platoon of uh, somewhere around 60 men to around 19 that were still walking. Everybody else was wounded or killed. And you knew them all? I knew most of them. Most and then 
because there were some that I didn't that were shot or or killed right before I you know I met them but yeah. I knew most of them and then became um, a family with them and I mean I've been with them for you know we go to all our reunions and yeah it's powerful and it's also a situation where in some cases it's very sad we've lost more men now from suicide than we lost in Fallujah in the unit yeah so. and, and I think that for you know being that you are a historian and when you say we for the for the viewers who haven't watched it yet if they read the book they'll know why you say we because you you were 100 quite literally one of them to the point of pulling pulling them out well, I never want to take any credit that I don't deserve, but uh, it's been that those um, Marines have, have bestowed that on me and, and welcomed me into that. Um, yeah. And you, that you family. did that. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, this, and not, not to get, not to get, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, in, into the sad talk or the uh, macabre right. or anything else, but um, uh, so so the the history the history of all of it um so let, let's go into that like you so you started interviewing uh world war ii vets the 82nd and then the 101st and then the various the 509th and right the, and, and various airborne units and then when did your interest in special operations or elite units come along well, that it, it always was there. It was there with the airborne, and then it just sort of branched out to the Rangers, and then it went to this the first special service force, which is a joint um, Canadian and American unit. Um, interviewed many, many of those men, and it just went from there. Um, and then 9 11 hit, and I'll never forget. I, I thought, man, that's the end of my career. I can't, you know, I, I thought, I thought, man, this destroyed the economy, it's over. And then um, there was this interest in special operations with Afghanistan as well as intelligence. And it came to mind, you know, nobody has ever done anything on the OSS. Yeah. At that time, it had not been, it's been, it was untouched. And I started to do a deep dive into the OSS. And, um, you know, I, the Airborne and the Rangers were tough nuts to crack. The OSS was the ultimate secret society. It was a, a group of individuals, men and women, that really largely maintained their vows of silence. Uh, many of them had, you know, worked in the agency afterwards or in, you know, other elements of, uh, you know, the security apparatus. And they, they really maintained their vows of silence. They didn't talk about the war at all. And this was an organization that really had not been um, thoroughly interviewed or explored. And it's a very, very complex organization. The, um, inside the National Archives, I've spent over 20 years looking at the OSS files. It's, um, it's, they say it's about two cubic miles of records. And in many cases, the organization is, is uh, less to be desired than to be desired in many ways. It's, it's kind of like drilling for oil in, in some cases. You never know what you're gonna find. And I've just spent years going through this stuff and, and just finding and unearthing incredible, incredible stories. When you say the organization, you don't mean the organization of the OSS, but you mean the organization of, 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 the, of 
the yes. all material and then how it was organized. How, how it was organized. It was just kind of like this massive dump. And then they had the archivist had to somehow sort through it. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. A dramatic pause says something without saying anything at all. Feet deserve a go-to like that. Like Hey Do Choose. Light, comfy, good to go to. And the finding aids were very, very scant. Nothing yeah. is, uh, at the time when I started doing it, nothing was computerized or anything like that. It was all hard copy, paper, files. And it, it was really uh, hard to find things yeah. in ways. Well, so, what was it like trying to track down some of the actual members who served in the OSS and like trying to approach them and to get them to open up to you? It was not easy. Um, everything was done uh, <laughs> uh, by a referral basis. Um, initially, I was looked at as this outsider. And um, I, I just sort of worked my way very carefully, you know, one individual at a time and it had one reference at a time from each individual and just kind of worked my way outward. Um, initially, I wasn't well received by some of the, um, you know, the folks that were in kind of the, the, um, in the society, so to speak, but then they recognized what I was really up to and uh, that I was really trying to capture their story and, and tell it the way it was and, and do it very, very thoroughly, uh, you know, with all primary sources and do the interviews too that nobody really had ever done. And um, it just kind of went from there. My first real contact was um, his nickname was The Brain. And his, this is a gentleman by the name of Albert Materazzi. And he ran all the Italian operations for the, something called the, op, the operational groups, the OGs in Northern Italy. And this was a very fascinating um, area of operation that really had never been covered because you had sort of like Iraq, it was multiple insurgents groups. You had communists, you had nationalists, you had anarchists <laughs> all these weird groups that were kind of a soup that were up there operating and there were insurgents it was a very complex insurgency and the oss was feeding each one of these groups with small teams and um i got into that with with the brain and you know we, we i'd go over his house over in bethesda and and we'd go down to the basement and it was this file room that was just stuffed with tens of thousands of documents that he wow. had gotten from the uh, national archives and we'd have pasta down there and talk. And it was just like the coolest thing in the world because he was not only this ops officer, but he was, he was a historian himself and really into the history and, and, and talked about how really it had never been told properly or it was mistold. And you know, I really got into the weeds uh, from there. And then it branched out into other interviews and other uh, individuals. Patrick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a couple of questions or a couple uh, donations real quick. And then I, I, I want to roll it back to the genesis of the OSS for people who are completely like unaware of that. Uh, first off, uh, Andrew, thank you very much. And Andrew said, RIP borders, RIP borders. And, and it really is sad. You know, I mean, Amazon's great and it's great having Kindle. But it, it really, I miss having bookstores where you could just go and peruse books and sit down with a book and, and read a chapter or two of it to know if it was something that 
It, absolutely. That's why I love Bar Barnes and Noble so much. Yeah. That is your, your kind of library that's getting all the most contemporary books that you can just sit down and, and pull it off the shelf, peruse it, browse it, or go to the table and, and, and know within like five minutes what the most current topics are. Yeah. Things going I mean, on. That's why I love Barnes and Noble so much. I, I, have, I have to credit Barnes and Nobles and Borders with keeping And then that, I'll, I'll also, you know, plug all those independents out there. They're pretty amazing too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, they're still, still doing what they're doing. And I do really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, and thank you very much, Alex. And Alex says, what was the craziest gadget you found in your research? Which is a good, great question because the OSS had a lot of interesting stuff. And also what was your favorite meal you had in your travels? Like it if there was a preferred meal. Sure. Or gadget. Um, well, uh, I think the gadget would probably be, um, it would be this, uh, the OSS had this, this ballpoint pen that was actually a 22 caliber pistol. It, it shot a single round if you pulled the, the back of it and it would, it would fire. Um, and um, I, I actually interviewed one of the individuals that used it and- uh, Used it, actually used it operationally. He used it operationally. It was probably my most interesting interview with anybody from the OSS. And um, let me just pull up book here um this book is probably my this this book is my favorite story of all world brenner War II stories. Yeah. brenner assignment um has a main character can you tell that with the lights hitting it there yeah, you go sorry yeah, about brenner, it. perfect yeah the brenner assignment is really one of the most extraordinary stories of world war ii i think it's the most interesting story of world war ii it's, um, I've had a lot of interest from Hollywood on this for, for a movie. It, it is the perfect movie in many ways. There are two main characters. The first character is Stephen Hall. And Stephen Hall is a, um, an Ivy League dropout from Princeton and Yale that um, was a guy that was always trying to find himself. He, he, was, a, he was a wildcat driller for, for oil. Uh, he went on a, he was a circus shill. He would go in it with the fat man in the ring and, and literally go a couple rounds before getting knocked out. And um, but Stephen Hall was also this really incredibly wealthy guy that in 1938 went to the, um, the Cortina area of northern Italy and skied and mountain climbed and um, spent six months there and really got to know the land. In in World War II, when World War II broke out, he um, he joined an engineer combat engineer unit with the army and was really never happy with it. But he penned a letter to the OSS on a long train ride home from the East Coast back to Washington State where he was training that said, if you send a single man in to destroy the sub passes that lean into the Brenner Pass, we can interrupt the flow of supplies, the, the Germans flow of supplies from the Third Reich into Italy. And he proposed this in a three-page letter to, to, to William Donovan. And the letter went in, and within weeks, there, there was a phone call. And Stephen Hall was out of the combat engineers in training for a mission that would ultimately lead to his death. Wow. That perilous. And but So they, they trained him up. Um, but he, he was given full responsibility on organizing his his mission team and all of his supplies and where he was going to drop everything. 
he um, it's it's 1944, um, and the war is you know starting to turn against. It's already turned against the Germans, but the it's the tough old gut in Italy where the German army is fighting mountain to mount, mountaintop by mountaintop and bleeding the allies to death. And they have this flow of supplies coming in from the Brenner, Brenner Pass. Allied bombers aren't able to touch it because it's heavily defended. And Stephen Hall has given his wish of, of mounting this team. And he, they, they, he parachutes into the, an area called the Frioli, which is more close, a little closer to the, um, the Yugoslav border. And it's occupied by this weird mix of, of individuals. There's Cossacks that the Germans have placed here to occupy the area and control it. There's also um, partisan groups there that are Marxist. And Stephen Hall is this rich kid that's kind of a wasp that suddenly finds himself trying to swim in this sea of partisans, you know, that are Marxist. Yeah. And everything that possibly could go wrong goes wrong. The main thing being that Stephen Hall does not have a radio, and that's a major problem. The radio with any OSS mission, or any mission for that matter, is your lifeline to be able to bring in supplies or even report actionable intelligence. So he's using other um, radios from other teams there, but they need to send him a radio operator. And that's where my most interesting OSS individual that I ever interviewed comes into play. His name is Howard Chappell, and he's the main second main character of this book. Now, now I just want to point out to our viewers: <coughs> you say character; these, these are actual human beings that were. These involved. are real people. I shouldn't yeah. say. I, I guess I, I. What I mean by that is, this is somebody that's even larger than life than yeah. you can imagine. Howard Chappell was six foot three, uh, two hundred and thirty pounds, just pure muscle, pure killer. Yeah, I mean, it was just unbelievable. Um, you know, his nickname was Flash Gordon. He would go down to the, you know, if you guys are familiar with those, the jump towers down at Fort Benning, Ch Howard ran those towers <coughs> in the 504 before he went into the OSS. And he literally would take the parachute harnesses and, and wind them around his wrists without a harness. And he'd go, he'd go all the way to the top and parachute down with no harness at all, just being wrapped around. Um, and th this guy was just fearless. And um, the Donovan personally recruited him after meeting him at the jump towers to, 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 to create one of the operational groups. It was called the German operational group. Everybody in there could speak German. And it was, this was kind of, this was a, uh, a dirty dozen. You had a, uh, an eclectic group of people. There was a butcher in there. There were a lot of refugees from Germany. Mm -hmm. And this leads into another book I wrote which is the true story behind Inglorious Bastards called They Dared Return. Yeah. And these were members of, of Howard's group in that. And, and, and it's, it, it is the actual factual basis of the Inglorious Bastards. It is. Yeah. And this is Howard's group and they, they train up, but literally everything that could go wrong goes wrong. They get, they get dropped at the wrong port in North Africa and literally have to work their way across the Sahara of the desert to get to Italy. It's, it's really wild, <clears throat> but it, to make a long story short, the OSS tags Howard to bring a radio to Stephen Hall. And he's, he parachutes in with a small team of several individuals around Christmas time, 1944, to bring in this radio. And um, 
the SS are very active in the area. They have something called Restalamentos, where they literally take a battalion of SS soldiers off the line and they put dogs out and everything else. And they just do massive screens to find any partisans. And the, they were out for several weeks and their, their safe house was overrun by a Restalamento. And um, the SS surrounded the house and Howard literally shot his way out with a BAR. And um, another individual had a, a M1 carbine. And it's an incredible story. They, were, they, were, they found a small ravine and several of these OSS operatives literally covered their faces with mud as the SS were walking by. One guy literally put a bayonet into the hole and they grabbed the bayonet and um, the guy was like trying to pull it out and he just let go. And it's at that point, he like jumped on the guy and just murdered him. Yeah. And Howard was, was fleeing for his life in this situation. And um, he was captured because one of the members of the team lied about his, the fact that he had asthma and he was running for his life and he was winded. And Howard didn't want this guy to be captured by the SS. So he surrendered with him. But here's where this, where I get back to with the, the viewer's question. He pulled out this 22 caliber ballpoint pen Holy on a German soldier that had a 98K Gewehr aimed right at him. And the guy's like, what? <laughs> and he just, he, the, Howard fired it and tossed it. And um, the, the round, as he was running, he was running like a racehorse, hit the back of his, the flesh on his calf from the, the, the German's rifle. And I'll never forget when I interviewed him, I asked him, hey, you still, he pulled up his leg and this is a 91 year old man. And that scar was still there that where the bullet grazed him. But he hid that night in a barn and was captured again the next day and um, was being marched back and literally did kind of like a judo move threw the guy over his shoulder and then cracked his neck. So, and what's so cool about it is it wasn't, I didn't take Howard's word for it, even though I believed him. There was another British officer with the SOE that was behind the lines with the OSS. And in the course of that mission, the two of them had met up at a wine cellar um, and, and he had told the story of this incident to the British officer. So it was in the British files, the exact story that I'm telling you now. Pat, can you just tilt your camera down a little bit? Cause you're kind of disappearing on us. Yeah, sure, no problem. There you go. Okay. And, and Thank you. Actually, this is a good time for a station plug because, uh, because we're gonna talk about a Patreon real quick. But the reason I wanna bring up Patreon right now is because um, Patrick is actually going to tell more, uh, like tell about your interview with Howard Chapel, like this, and who, who is the inspiration for the Gangster Squad movie you were yeah. saying? Uh, on our Patreon. So if you join our Patreon, even a dollar a month will get you all the access you want to our, our special, or, you know, our interviews with people. Um, all of our previous guests, uh, you know, will give it kind of an, uh, an, a, a private interview about something, something very interesting. Uh, so please, um, if you haven't subscribed to our channel, please subscribe to our channel. Thank you for joining us. Uh, hit the notification button to get all the notifications. Um, the links to our Patreon is in the description. And like I said, um, I know times are tough right now, but if you can give us a buck a month, it helps us. It helps us a lot. It helps pay our rent on, well, we have a studio, even though I'm the only one using it now because 
because the Ronies. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I, I exiled Jack. Um, and uh, yeah, so Patrick on our Patreon will be telling more of an in-depth story about his interview with Howard Chappell and more about literally the man, the myth, the legend. Yeah. Literally the man, the myth, the legend. Yeah, right uh, before he met that British officer, Howard was, was unarmed basically, but somehow he found a ski pole <laughs> and literally beat a German officer to death with the speak, ski pole and then walked into the Ostra, the, this wine cellar and talked to this British agent. And here I had hatchet in me. <laughs> now, I'll never forget when I asked him about it. Um, he's like, I, I go, do you recall this specific? He's like, well, I don't remember if I beat that guy to death with a ski pole or I used the fire log I'm like, or a silencer. <laughs> it was just like, he was just stone cold. Yeah. It just, and he was, but he was incredibly effective. And what he did at the end of that mission is even more amazing. What do you think, uh, you know, Pat, it, it says about the OSS that it, it in some ways there's a lot of affinity, like our previous guest for uh, on the show, Sam Faddis, I think has a real affinity for the OSS and the way it was structured and the way it functioned, that blending of intelligence-driven paramilitary operations. Um, but at the same time, those guys back then, they were citizen soldiers. It was all put together in a very ad hoc manner, as you said. Um, but they were also very effective. And do you think, why do you think that is? Do you think it's sure. because it was so decentralized and they just, qual they took these guys and said, hey, it's your operation. You plan it the way you want to run it and go out there and make it happen. There's a number of factors. I think that the OSS model is one that did thrive in chaos. And that was this sort of out of the box, you know, allowing a lot of people, a lot of freedom that created some extraordinary stuff. Um, another book I wrote, on the OSS is First Seals. And this is about the OSS Maritime Unit. And this is a story about individuals that literally had to develop the seals and the, the scuba gear and a rebreather overnight with 10,000 bucks. <laughs> That's the kind of people these were that they, that they, that they had. And they used a dentist um, from Hollywood, California, a guy that was a screenwriter for Paramount that was also a British commando and you know a okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes ChumbaCasino.com. No by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sterling Hayden. I mean, I think the thing that makes the OSS unique is not only this out-of-the-box thing, but it's people that had... It's not siloed. It's not people that are kind of 
Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. I don't want to say stereotypical, but known. These were people from walks of life that were already sort of established. Right. That they pulled out of established life. Right. That, were, that had these amazing contacts they already had sort of an amazing life to begin with. And then we're told to go kind of run with it. Well, and at that time, there were a lot of first and second generation people of it, you know, it, 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 one, you know, there was more of a, you know, we had more uh, German immigrants. We had more, you know, uh, Italian. Italians. Um, it, and I mean, and society was different at the time too. Like, Right now, like if you got in a bar fight, it would wind, you know, it would be a mar on your record. But it, I, th- well, Bill Donovan, I think I think sort of the problem sometimes now today is the zero defect mentality. Exactly. Which, you know, where it's like you have to have this unblemished record. So nobody right. takes any risk. And, and, and I mean, Don, Donovan's kind of mentality was I want an Ivy League grad, uh, grad who can win a bar fight. That was the that was their fame. That was sort of a, that's a way of encapsulating exactly the situation. It was also a situation where if you fall, fall forward. In other words, you're allowed to fail. Yeah. But in order, but failure sometimes leads to great success. Now, let me just point out that not everything about the OSS was great. I mean, there were things that were problematic. Um, In in fact, that there was, there was coordination issues. There was a situation where the OSS literally like burgled a, an embassy in Spain to get cipher codes. It was a, it was a Japanese embassy. And that, that nearly destroyed our efforts with the purple code that we had cracked earlier. So, I mean, there, sometimes there was coordination or issues. So, but, so let's, let's roll back real quick and, and just talk about what is the OSS? How, how did it come to be? It, it starts out in 1941 where there's a presidential order by Roosevelt to create, to, to solve the problem that we still have somewhat today which there's, there's different silos of intelligence. And when you say silo, you just mean- a, a What I mean by that system. is, for instance, the Navy was gathering intelligence, the State Department was gathering intelligence, but nobody was coordinating it together. They created a, you know, another little uh, euphemism, it was called the coordinator of information. This was the predecessor to the OSS. And this was, this was designed to coordinate intelligence but it had a broad um, you know, set of orders. It was to, to do not only intelligence, but it was also to, to develop uh, commando teams or special operations and psyops too. But Donovan was an, an amazing, I mean, I, one way of putting it is OSS was Donovan and Donovan was OSS. This, is, this guy was a great leader and a great mind. And where did he was a lawyer before the war. Okay, he was and, like no military experience or? Lot. What's that? No military, yeah. experience. military experience was incredible. He was one of the most decorated soldiers of World War One in the AEF. Okay. The distinguished service cross 
and the Medal of Honor um, against the Hindenburg Line, where his, his men in this, the fighting 69th are nearly slaughtered um, against some of the, you know, Germany's toughest defenses in October 1918, um, September to October 1918. And, um, you know, he survives the war. Uh, the war has a, a really profound impact on him, too. He realizes that frontal assaults are ineffective. Right. And it, it's Donovan that comes up with many of what we now know is kind of the combined arms of shadow warfare, where he's combining um, special ops and psyops and intelligence together to, to attack the enemy, which was very unique and pioneering at the time. And he has to come up with all of the stuff that we now take for granted. There were no, there were no commandos during uh, at the start of World War II. There was, the psyops was, was non-existent. All this stuff had to be created and it was, it was created in the OSS in many cases. And the, and, and the OSS was not only civilian, but it was joint. It's more, it's a lot like JSOC, where they were pulling from, you know, various branches within the military, the Marine Corps, the Army, the Navy, even the Coast Guard, too, has a, has a profound impact on, on uh, First Seals, for instance. And it's important to point out, too, that there at the time, there was no such thing as special operations. There's no such thing as the CIA. Uh, there were, I mean, you no. tell me, but I mean, after World War One, it was like a really broad stand down, like, hey, it's the, the Great War is over. It's never going to happen again. Right? It's the classic American situation where we want to save money and we just yeah. shave everything to the bone. Yeah. And not only that, you had within the Army and the Navy, a profound dislike for anything that was a regular warfare or special operation. It was considered a waste of time and it was a, it was a, we're bleeding off precious resources from the line units that were out there that were going into combat. Right. I mean, this is our best guys. They're going to take our best guys. None of it was, it was all frowned upon. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, there's also like in, in trench war, like trench warfare is very like formal in a way. If you think about it, it's like, two two lines of riflemen like taking a knee in front of each other and firing off rounds right like there there's a sense of honor even though it's completely suicidal and special operations is it, it's they're brigands and hooligans and and you know like it, it's like there's very it's very dishonorable to sneak up behind an enemy and and to stab him in the back <laughs> yeah you know? the um the principal individual behind they dared return the the real and glorious bastards is frederick mayer a german uh refugee from germany his his family flees in the early 30s or mid 30s to the united states and um at the beginning of the war frederick mayer is a enemy alien within the united states he goes down to the draft board multiple times to volunteer his services for the u.s army and is denied because he's an enemy alien Finally gets in and he's um, he's with the, uh, you know, the, the U.S. infantry and they're doing ground maneuvers in Arizona um, or out west, I should say. And they have a red and blue team, uh, you know, training exercise. And, and Fred, you know, totally believes in that maxim of not following any kind of rules or honor. And he captures the opposing general in the exercise. And, uh, you know, is the hero of the day. And then they say, you know, we've got just the place for you. It's called the OSS. And he shipped off to Washington, D.C. And um, it's sort of comical in many ways. The um, Washington, D.C. and Virginia 
that is a training ground for the OSS. And um, many cases, the cab drivers in DC know about these so secret facilities. And, you know, Fred just says, yeah, we've got to, I got to go to, to congressionally outlet. We're like, yep, we know exactly where you're going. And we dropped off another guy earlier. And that was a training ground for the OGs, the Congressional Country Club. And he's dropped off there by cab and, you know, walks up to the main building, which is, it was a, a barracks at the time. But the entire fairgrounds were, um, were where the OGs trained. They did hand-to-hand -hand combat with Fairburn. They blew up the greens. Uh, they did demolitions. They did map reading exercises, et cetera. And um, that's where the, uh, the real and glorious bastards are born. But the, the entire, I mean, all of DC, there's so many areas in here. The first seals, for instance, I was the first person to really get into this, but the, um, the, the, the hotel down, downtown, um, uh, the Shoreham Hotel has a ballroom that's in the basement of the hotel. Um, and that was the, it's called the Empire Room now, but that was the pool. And in 1942, 43, it was, 42 was the largest indoor pool in, in, in Washington, D.C. And that's where they, they tested the rebreather. It's now boarded over. Yeah, there's now a plaque down there. We the OSS Society dedicated a plaque to the first seals, and and Sterling Hayden's son came when we dedicated. It was really, really an incredible thing. But the first rebreather was tested in that pool. So, so did did Donovan get? So when Roosevelt kind of had this mandate, did did Donovan volunteer? Did he get recruited? How did he wind up running it? It was interesting. He was kind of um, Donovan was political. At the time, it was kind of a. It was kind of a Karl Rove of his day, in a sense. He was a Republican, but he was also um, well respected by the president because of his his Wall Street. He was a Wall Street lawyer. He was a very successful lawyer, and um, he uh, he uh, you know was able to get everything sort of together, and he was an ambassador prior to the war. And then FDR actually sent him over to, to England to, to study the defenses on the, on, the, on the British to see whether or not they could survive. And um, he, he gained a lot of trust. And it was the OS, he, FDR gave him the, uh, the ability to stand up the OSS. Did, did FDR come up with this idea by himself? Did somebody recommend it to him? How well, was it? It's an interesting story. Uh, the, uh, First, they, FDR sends him over as an ambassador to see if the if the British will hold, <clears throat> and he goes around to uh, to various areas um, to see you know to, to see if the if the if, if what's, what's going to really happen. He, he sees some of the uh, the British intelligence, etc., and um, he's uh, he's sort of given the mandate of coming back and reporting whether or not they can they can survive. And comes back, writes a report, and the British actually say to us, "We need you. Really need to have an intelligence apparatus or an organization." And they come back over with several individuals. Interestingly enough, including Ian Fleming, who recommends that that you know they they create something, and it's they recommend um, Donovan. And FDR appoints Donovan to, to stand up everything. And they, they, wasn't there a competing entity that called the Pond? That's that's another um, that's another sort of um, aspect of it. But 
it's this it's a set of uh it is another uh, entity out there, but from it didn't really have as much teeth as the OSS. Right, I mean, right. OSS had fifteen thousand individuals that were, um, you know, in uniform or or working at desks in Washington D.C. analyzing infor information. Did um, so. Did Donovan have a grand view of what this was going to look like, or did it did it evolve over time? Like, were there a lot he of had a grand view? This this is a guy that I mean, my favorite one of my favorite quotes about Donovan is that he could recognize that an acorn would become a tree, and and sort of how a small grain could become this blossom into this organization. He was instrumental in much of what was go of how it was built and how it was laid out, and then he really had a hand in many of um, in a micro level of many of, of these organizations that are stood up such as the um, the um, maritime unit or the OGs or the Jeds um, especially the OGs actually and then something called special operations which is a pre precursor to the, uh, the, uh, the operational groups um, he had a in psyops too he had a hand in all this stuff Hmm. Fascinating. But he also, he also would, he had this incredible ability to pick the right person for the right job. And just pull out his Rolodex and come up with, you know, put the right person in charge and let him go. So he wasn't much of a micromanager then? Not really. Uh, but he, it, what's fascinating about about Donovan is his he, he had a lust for for action he hated to be chairborne he took part in many of the um amphibious operations of World War II he was on D-Day he was at Anzio he was at Burma I mean, this guy was there in many cases it was not far behind the first wave so then with the operational groups, what, what were they? What did they do? How many people were in them? Like what, what was their mission? Typical operational group, the, there, were, there were multiple operational groups, but they were all focused on specific regions of the world. Most of them were at the beginning were European. For instance, there was a Norwegian group that specialized in Nor folks that spoke, you know, they were Norwegian. Um, there was a Greek group. There were... Um, there were there was an Italian group. There was a German group that I mentioned, and they were fifteen to thirty. Well, they were initially there were more than that, but the teams within each group were fifteen to thirty men, and then they went behind the lines. In some cases in Northern Italy, they were trimmed down to about four or five men because they felt that the uh, the larger group was uh, a hindrance. But this included a, uh, a security detail where they had guys that were kind of, you know, with a BAR, they had a medic, uh, they had a radio guy, they had explosive experts. And, you know, they went in and their job was to train uh, partisans to destroy, um, you know, assets such as bridges, or in some cases to capture them like a dam that might have that might fall into the German hands. They wanted it. They wanted that asset captured. Um, gather intelligence. Um, a lot of it, though, was 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 working directly with the partisans to raise them, to arm them, equipment, to train them, and to go after uh, German targets. And I was 
Oh, go ahead, I was Jack. wondering if you could explain the difference um, between the OGs uh, of the OSS and the Jedberg teams and sure. the Sussex teams, um, which all are, are really fascinating in their own right. That there, there are there are multiple levels to this. The umbrella group initially was called Special Operations or SO, and then that branched out into the OGs, the Jeds. Um, there were even special operations groups. There were Sussex groups. But let, let me just sort of take one at a time. Sure. The Jedbergs were trinational. In other words, they were there was typically a Frenchman or a Dutchman. Uh, there was an American and a Brit. And they were placed together. They had a language specialty. They were, um, they were trained in demolitions. And there was a radio operator within each team, et cetera. And there were about a hundred Jedburg teams that dropped into France and Holland. And all of them were three-man teams. They were all three-man teams, and they did a lot. Of, they 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 were very effective. They were all uh, dropped after D-Day, or slightly after that. Um, and most of them um, operated in the Brittany area, where they were very heavily concentrated, where they were working directly with uh, partisans to. Um, to arm and equip, equip them, also provide demolition expertise to slow German reinforcements from reaching the battlefield or direct action with, re, with, uh, with, with these units or uh, gathering intelligence. And they were very effective. The operational groups are sort of the unsung group within the, uh, the OSS, I think, but they were highly effective, um, especially in places like Greece and Italy. In Greece, there were over 15 teams that were, that were dropped in. These are, you know, anywhere between 15 and 30 men that were heavily armed. Some of these guys had bazookas um, and other weapons, and uh, they went they went after uh, German trains and supply routes, and really did a lot of damage. When they would go in, would they have like one primary target, or would they go in with the sort of order of like develop intel and create mayhem? That's exactly what it was. There was no, there was generally no one primary target. It was work and interface with the resistance, train them up. I mean, a, another primary objective is to tie down as many German forces as possible. And that was a, you know, I mean, it, it goes back to, you know, the civil war, a small group of men that can tie up a thousand men, you're yeah. winning the battle. Yeah. Cause you're That's taking the, you're taking those thousand bad guys off the battlefield who would be exactly. fighting our troops in the Sicily open. and Anzio and so on. Exactly. It also, there's an also an interesting dynamic that's not often reported. The, um, the partisans were brutal to the Germans. I mean, they, they would, I mean, <laughs> because they were, the Germans were brutal to them. Right. I mean, they would execute partisans with, you know, immediately. But what, what's interesting is if they found out that there was an American with those partisans, they'd be willing to surrender. And you have situations with the OSS where thousands of Germans surrender to a single OSS individual. That's the case with Howard Chapel, where literally 4,500 Germans, including a heavy Tiger tank battalion, surrendered to a single guy. Is that because they, well, one- That's like, because they knew that the American would probably treat them fairly to some where, degree. Where the partisans, so- Would for, execute them. For, for any of our viewers who don't understand, like, I mean, this kind of lingo that we use, a partisan, or a guerrilla is somebody who is native, so to a country that is invaded generally. So if we're talking about France, when the Germans invaded France, any of the French resistance fighters were considered partisans 
and the teams would would hook up with them and and enable them in, in whatever ways the communications with arms with supplies exactly. things like that and within those partisans you had as as pat was saying communists democrats right. socialists anarchists all sorts of different characters right. in well, there it was a star wars bar of of cats and dogs <laughs> <laughs> behind the lines right um you know, I had the honor of of uh, of of, of uh, representing the OSS Society for for the 75th anniversary of D-Day, but our first stop was Southern France, and we went to the region of Southern France, which is near the um, not far from the Spanish border, and it was there that the OSS had a very successful team. Ironically, it was called Pat Team Pat Operational Group Team Pat, and they operated in this area where they utilized safe houses. And they went after German rail um, ambushed German patrols. They lost several guys, but their greatest coup was as the, um, the the Southern France invasion was taking place. They blew several of the bridges for the reinforcements were, that were heading toward the Operation Dragoon to reinforce the German beachhead. And, I mean, they they were trying to stem the tide from the Allied beachhead at Dragoon in Southern France, and. Um, a single group, Operation Group Team Pat, had over 8,000 German prisoners because they blew the rail lines and they surrendered to these Americans. Amazing stuff. That, that, that is incredible. Uh, let me get to some questions real quick. Um, uh, we did the quiz. Patrick, when it comes to the question of historiography for your OSS histories, which route did you take and how did you decide to take that route? Why don't you? Um, it, well, I mean, my route was real simple. It was interview the participants, and then and then look at all the primary sources. How did you find them when it was such a classified organization? Like how you said you started with the brain. How did that contact first happen? It first happened when I I found his contact in a um, another book that had been written by an Italian author, and his name was listed. And I contacted him through, the book was in Italian actually. And I contacted him through that. And I knew that he was in the, he wasn't far from me, he was in, a, he was in Bethesda. And I contacted him, I called him up and he said, well, why don't we go to dinner? And we went to, we went to a, an Italian place that's no longer there. It was near uh, La Tomate, I think it was called. It was near the Cheesecake Factory on Wisconsin Avenue. And we had this incredible discussion. And then he recommended one person to me after another. And it was, interestingly enough, the hardest person to ever interview was Howard Chapman. He would never talk to anybody. And that's, I'll tell that story at the end. Yeah, and, 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 and did you, do you feel that they're more apt to talk to you because you approach them as a historian rather than a journalist? Or Absolutely. The, they, they, um, they had seen the, the books that I'd written uh, prior to Operative Spies and Saboteurs. And, um, but it was all, it was a, it was a, it was gaining trust one individual at a time. And it was a trust and friendship thing. I think that's probably the, out of all the things I'm most proud of is, is being bestowed with that trust of, with, of individual stories and how precious those are. Yeah. Now, did you, did you uh, tape or record video? Uh, I did. I, I recorded them on video and, or on, on a, on a small, uh, um, tape recorder, digital tape recorder. Yes, yeah, some of some, I've I've watched some of them. And they're very emotional. Like so, some of the, like you say, some of the guys are still 
post-traumatic stress, like some of them are still like very much in those moments when. Yeah, and I, I was able to sort of, I knew the history so well in each case that each interview was not only a conversation, but it was intimate as yeah. well. And it was wow. a detailed dive into their story. Because you already had an awareness about what was going on so you could direct the, the interview in a way that was- Yes. Um, and thanks, Jim, for that. Uh, Ian, thank you very much. Um, which group that you've studied do you feel, and maybe not, this isn't just the OSS because you already mentioned the OG, but any group that you have studied, which group that you've studied do you feel is the most underappreciated and why? Underappreciated. I would say that it would probably be, um, <laughs> keep pulling these books out. No, I'm glad you did. This is, this is the story of World War I. The Unknowns. And it's the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, but it's a combat history of America and World War I through the most decorated enlisted men. I would say that this is the most underappreciated group because the World War I generation was a great generation too. It was a generation that changed the world, even more so in some cases than World War II. Because, I mean, look at the things that modern medicine has developed, um, women's, uh, the right to vote, the, the Middle East has created communist Russia. Communism is a rise to power. The world is remade in World War I. This Before World War I, it was, it was an era of kings and queens. I mean, yeah, everything changed after Empires that. are changed. Democracies are created. It's the rise of the American, the American, that America that we know as yeah. a world power, as a superpower. It, it begins, the modern army begins in World War I. Right. I, and before so many things, the Marine, the modern Marine Corps begins after Bella Wood. There are, there are just, you know, endless examples and it's underappreciated. It was a situation where I, I, this book is a best-selling book. I literally had to teach folks about World War One, and, and it's, it's an underappreciated situation in this generation. Sacrifices is exceptional. Um, there's an, there's an amazing amount of heroes in this, in this war. Well, it, I mean, wasn't wasn't the casualty rate in World War One almost double what it was in World War Two? Well, I mean, we only had—I uh, shouldn't say only—but I mean, there was about a hundred and over a hundred and twenty thousand American casualties, and many of them were from the pandemic of nineteen eighteen and nineteen nineteen, the so-called Spanish flu. Yeah, um, which I write about in this book because one of the characters in the in the unknowns is with the U.S. Navy, and. It's, it's a diverse set of stories. It's a, it, <clears throat> this is about a boiler man in an in a, in a, in American troop transport ship that's bringing sh troops over to, to, to Europe and back. <clears throat> and this ship is also a plague ship. It's filled with soldiers that have influenza. And the ship is, is literally, people are being infected every minute. Sure. The ship has is, is got this influenza pandemic that's going on with, it's a plague ship, as well as what happens is a torpedo slams into the, the, the main room where this guy's a uh, boiler tender. And he's able to, um, you know, save several men in the boiler room as he's being scalded alive. His back is burned to death by hot boiler, um, by the, the soot from the boiler, as well as 
is, is the steam. And he's able to close a watertight door that saves the ship. <laughs> wow. But that's, that's some of the stories in the unknowns. It, but it also has the story of individual like Samuel Woodfill, who receives the Medal of Honor for, for taking out five machine gun nests. It's incredible stuff. And the unknowns is basically about what, the about the people assigned to bring an unknown soldier the remains back and the establishment of the tomb of the unknown soldier. Correct. Correct. Which was largely a um, believe it or not an unknown story. Uh, much of the the book there's a lot of details that I've unearthed in there that I mean the tomb guard. There, that is one of the most amazing organizations in America. Yeah. They guard our tomb you know, 24 hours a day, you know, every day of the year, That's no matter what the conditions of the weather are. Yeah. There was, there was information that I unearthed that they were unaware of, and they have to know the history inside now. And I was very honored that they made me an honorary member of the tomb guard. Really? That's cool. Which was, yeah. yeah. That is, it is a very, very rigorous, I mean, it is not a duty for the week. Indeed. You know, it's a, uh, I, I, I wrote, brought up. I wrote a story maybe a couple months ago about the first African-American tomb guard. And it was really interesting, you know, as far as the, the lore behind it is that uh, a, a Kruma from, uh, from Ghana came and visited and told, asked JFK, how come there aren't any black tomb guards and so it, the, I've watched this interview with the first African-American tomb guard and uh, he had some great stories. No, no doubt about it. I mean, they're just, they're just remarkable individuals. I interviewed when I was there, um, we had a reunion with the tomb guards and I interviewed Ron Crozier, who was a Medal of Honor recipient that was the body bearer for the tomb of the unknown soldier for the Korean War. Wow. This guy was unbelievable. And his... His stories are, I, I, I interviewed him there on the spot. I was just, I was blown away that, that he was, he, he, you know, was, his position was nearly overrun by Chinese, uh, a Chinese wave attack. And he was able to, to, uh, to survive and, you know, in Korea. incredible stuff in Korea. Yeah. Hey, Pat, what, what is an unknown soldier? Why do we have a tune for that? What, what is it? Well, what it is, is it's, it's an individual that they don't know um, the name or, 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 any aspect of who they are. I mean, there, there's never going to be an unknown soldier now because there's everybody has their DNA out there and everything wow. else. Yeah. But during World War One, you know, this is this is high intensity combat. You have, um, you know, lots of uh, heavy artillery where shells literally pulverize individuals, and they're non-existent. We don't know what happened to them, um, or there's there's remains that are just so that are they're very um that are indistinguishable and you're not able to identify who that individual is and during world war one there were about 3300 um or more americans that were quote unknown and um the tomb of the unknown soldier concept um comes from france they decided to honor in 1919 or 1920 a unknown soldier that represented all of the soldiers that fought for France during the Great War. And this idea initially did not catch on in the United States. Um, there's a, a number of factors that took place. Um, congressman by the name of Hamilton Fish, who fought with the, um, the Harlem Hellfighters. These are African-Americans that fought. 
in World War One. There were there were Americans that, that in some cases fought with the French Army and then also with the American Army. But Fish was an American was a was a white officer in this black unit, and he he really sort of championed the cause along with another woman by the name of Marie Maloney, who was um, an editor for a very popular woman's magazine at the time, and she started a letter campaign. And this caught fire, it became viral at the time. And they said like, you know, hey, look, France has an unknown soldier, so does England, why don't we do it? And initially the, the brass at the Pentagon pushed back and said, look, we'll, we'll be able to identify all 3,300 of those, those guys, don't worry about that. And, um, you know, men like Fish and others came forward and uh, pushed the idea. And this became, you know, an American, this is, was a very important part of closure for World War I to some degree. It was an, a, a way, a mechanism in um, 1921 to honor all of those who fought in, in the Great War for America. And it took place on November 11th, 1921. And uh, it, was a, it was at Arlington and it was a, ch it was a chance to, to honor the, uh, the unknown. And what happened is they went to the cemeteries in France and identified several individuals from each battle. They um, carefully exhumed the bodies and they looked through the, to make sure there was no dog tags, letters, or any identifying characteristics that would identify that individual. They then um, burned the burial cards for each cemetery for those, for those grave plots. And they, they brought each person into a, into a, um, uh, a city hall in France. And uh, there were several caskets in, in the city hall. And initially they, they were gonna use a general officer to select the unknown soldier out of those, 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 those five individuals. And that night, it's quite interesting. The French said, um, we used an enlisted man to, um, to select our unknown soldier. And Edward Younger, who had been with the ninth infantry regiment during World War One, which was part of the second division. The, the second division was one of the most um, heavily engaged and elite units within the AEF. It was also the fourth brigade was the uh, was part of the Marine Corps. There were two regiments, the fifth and the sixth that were at Bella Wood and other famous battles. But this, the second division was an incredible unit. And Edward Younger from the ninth was selected that, that, that day and that night to pick the unknown soldier. And that morning he was handed a bouquet of flowers and, and, and asked to select the unknown soldier. I mean, this is an awesome responsibility. And he literally prayed, walked into the room with his caskets and just worked his way around the room and said, I found his original notes from the experience he said his, his hand was literally drawn to the one casket where he felt that it was the man that it was somebody that was in his unit. And, and those, that specific casket, those bones are the ones that are interned. At that the are in the tomb of the unknown soldier. There's, there's a soldier from World War One, World War II, Korea. There initially was a soldier from the Vietnam War, but the, the remains were removed when it was determined that that, that individual was identified. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. That's great that they were identified. Right. The family anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, I have an interest in the guerrilla operations in the Philippines. 
what in your option is the best history of those operations? Can you comment on it? So was, was the OSS active in the Philippines? or yeah, were the, like, I, I want to like dive into the CBI theater. I don't know if we'll have time to get that to that on this episode, but maybe you, you can uh, answer that one maybe in brief. Interesting story there. Um, Mac MacArthur and Donovan were rivals during World War I. <laughs> <laughs> and that rivalry extended to World War II. Um, and MacArthur largely blocked the OSS from participating in the Pacific theater, even though they did. For instance, there was a um, UDT-10 UDT was a team that was composed largely of OSS maritime unit um, as well as individuals from the U.S. Navy. And UDT is underwater demolitionist team. Yes. Refer to the SEALs. Yes. Um, but by and large, many OS, there were, there were very few, there were fewer OSS operations in the Pacific, even though it did happen. Um, the OSS was very active in, um, in Burma. There was a group called Detachment 101, which was quite legendary. Um, and they, they tied down and killed a lot, of, a lot of Japanese soldiers in Burma. And they also, um, they were the guides for Merrill's Marauders, for instance, to take Mission I Airfield, um, which was a very critical airfield in, in, in uh, Northern Burma. Um, but there's, a, there's several, there's several uh, stories out there on, the, on, on uh, resistance in the Philippines, including individuals that were American soldiers that became um, guerrilla fighters. And there's some great stories out there. So I would recommend those, those individuals. There, it's, it's an area that still needs to be explored, quite frankly. So there you go. There's book 14 for you. Maybe. <laughs> or book 15, because you probably already have 14 plotted out, but I know you have 13. Um, can you comment on the OSS intelligence operations in China and Macau specifically? What about counterintelligence in that area? And how about white emigres in the area? I understand many work for Japan. Yeah, that's, an, that's a fascinating area. There's, um, there's, a, uh, there's a naval intelligence unit that's working uh, in China as well as the OSS. And there's a lot of friction that's, that's created within uh, China. Um, we're working with Chiang Kai-shek primarily but the OSS also sends in something called the Dixie Mission to Mao. And there are Americans that interface uh, directly with Mao, say Tom. We're playing both sides, basically. We're playing both sides, um, and uh, which is, you know, interesting. Uh, there's a number of operational groups that are stood up sort of at the end of the war where they're Chinese that are, that are uh, operational groups that are trained. In fact, Howard Chapel is training one of those groups along with, uh, there was actually some Japanese soldiers or Japanese Americans that are being trained too, um, to participate. But it's a complex brew and there's a lot of politics that are that are swirling around. But the OSS is also involved in, um, with Ho Chi Minh. And there's a, a mission in there called the Deer Mission that's sent in too. And they have very good relationship, uh, very good ties and relationship with Ho Chi Minh. Fascinating. Fascinating. What about the uh, the white emigres uh, and, and uh, working for Japan? Do you have Do you know anything about? I don't really. I, I really. Um, I'm not able to comment on that. Okay. Um, can Patrick talk about the extent of Soviet penetration of the OSS? I understand that Lynn Farish is believed to have been a Soviet double agent. 
Yeah, this is a um, this is one of the problems with the OSS. The OSS, Donovan will basically states that he'll he'll hire anybody to take on the Japanese and the Germans. Unfortunately, this includes um, individuals that are left leaning. Many of those individuals are patriotic Americans, but there are some that are working for the Soviets. And the OSS, this is one of its flaws. Some of it is infiltrated um, in, to, in some cases, and in some cases at a fairly senior level too, by um, the NKVD. There's, a, um, there's, a, there's an exchange program that takes place where we, we send some of our guys over to, to Moscow, but they send some of their guys. But it's also, it's, it's unfortunate, but there's, there's some penetration that, that we're not able to detect. And they're they're able to feed stuff to the Russians, and that's because during World War II, Russia was not was an ally. That is, that's them. absolutely correct. Yeah, um, but they were planning ahead in a sense of very much so, and they were mu very much our uh, adversary and enemy too. Yeah, um, and then uh, thank you, David Maynard, and thanks, DJ. We appreciate that. Um, just practically, uh, just practically, when eight thousand people surrender to a handful of people, how does that work? Like when, when <laughs> if there was an American on a Jedburgh team or an operational group team, like, and and eight thousand Nazis or eight thousand Germans surrender, how does that? I mean, are they just basically like we're done with this and like waving a white handkerchief in the air? Yeah. Well, each one of those situations. The American also had partisans backing him up. So he had some friendly guns backing him up. And um, there is also situations where these individuals are tired of the war. They want to get out and they, you know, they see an op opportunity to do that. And it's their officers that surrender to these Americans. And it's their officers that also enforce sort of that ceasefire. And they're, they're able to stack the arms and, and, and take the, take these prisoners into custody through the partisans. And how, how were the partisans, or how were the Americans able to control the actions of the partisans who had seen their homelands destroyed by the Germans? Right? It didn't, it, in some cases, it didn't go well. Um, uh, for instance, with Howard Chappell, the, um, you know, it's quite interesting. The, uh, a senior SS individual who hunted Howard in his team came up to Howard at the end and said to him, we have um, over 200 Italian civilians in the chapel and we're ready to blow it. And Howard just looked at him and said, go ahead. We have a parachute, he bluffed. We have a parachute regiment that just landed over the hill. I have all these partisans, we're gonna execute all of you. And, and the guy said, look, I'm going to take you prisoner. He's like, no, you're not. And the guy backed down and then said, okay, you seem like you're of German descent. I hope that you will be as honorable as I was to your men. And Howard has said, I will treat you exactly as you treated my men. <laughs> and that prisoner was shot trying to escape. Holy shit. <laughs> trying to escape. He was a maneuver element. <laughs> Hey, Clint is on. Clint uh, said, uh, great interview so far. Glad to see Patrick on the show. Dave hasn't seen him since our training sessions in 2001. And then also said, you should ask Pat to talk about John Booth, OSS Maritime Unit. Oh, John. 
John is a legend. John is the individual that's actually on the cover of First Seals. This is him in a rebreather uh, on a training exercise. Patrick, what is a rebreather for those? A rebreather allows you to, to recycle the oxygen and not release any bubbles that are a sort of a telltale sign if you're underwater, if you're trying to conduct a covert operation. Right, when you're going into a harbor or a, do, you know, a, a harbor area and there are people on watch, They'll right. watch for bubbles coming up, which which signify signals like scuba activity. Exactly. Scuba, interestingly enough, was developed, the term scuba was developed by Christian Lambertson, who developed this rebreather um, at the Shoreham Pool, where it was tested as operationally for the first time. The rebreather was developed, quite interestingly enough, it was the first rebreather he started playing around with it when he was a teenager out of an old gas mask and bicycle. A bicycle pump. So weird. So scuba yeah. self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. And, and he breathing. coined that term. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, but anyways, Booth is was one of the main operatives in the maritime unit. And and Booth was a very special family member to me. John would um John was was an incredible operative during the with the maritime unity. He was he he conducted some of the first red team uh, exercises in Cuba. Where they were, let me, this is before, you know, SEAL Team 6 and Marcinko, right? They said to these guys in 43, okay, you've got to infiltrate um, all the harbor defenses, and we're not telling anybody, <laughs> and plant fake charges on all the ships and then escape. And Booth did that um, at Guantanamo Bay in 44, uh, 43 or 44. Got out, um, and then he was doing ops in Burma. And in some of the operations out there, but he was later CIA in Korea. He trained everybody, and um, he would—he was a very close friend of mine. And John would come every year, uh, two or three times a year, on his way to Florida. John was 89 or 80, 88 years old, and would camp outside, and would go down to Key West, and he would go hunt for lobsters, and that was his food. And, and pull the lobsters out and cook them on the beach. But he would come every day, every like year, two or, two or three times a year and stay at the house. That was Uncle John to my, you know, my young daughter. And um, just an incredible guy. And he's, his stories are filled. And, and, and he invented scuba and the rebreather? No, no, John Booth was, was an operative within the OSS Maritime Unit. Okay. Christian Lambertson, who's the father of underwater uh, combat diving, and also developed the, the, the Dr. Lamberson developed a lot, the dive tables that we know today and so much more of the science be, behind diving, including the rebreather. Um, and he sort of stood up many of the combat swimmers within the OSS. Fascinating. So for those of you who don't know, a rebreather, like a scuba releases bubbles because you're taking in compressed air, breathing it out and goes up to the surface. A rebreather is a purely tactical thing that, that recycles the air, it scrubs the air uh, so that you have, I mean, it only lasts for a, a certain period of time, but it scrubs the air and no bubbles go up. So it's, it's, a, it's a tactical breathing apparatus for covert uh, infiltration or for covert operations underwater. So it gives no signal. Fascinating. And he invented that when he, or he thought of that when he was 16. He was a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania. In, in 1942, and um, the war is going on, and it, quite an inter interesting event occurs. 
in the, in the winter of 1942, an underwater arms race is set off by Italian frogmen. It's like early 1941, actually. They go into Alexandria Harbor covertly on submersibles and then plant charges on the hulls of several British battleships and disable them. They sank them into the harbor. And several of these men, some of them escape, most of them are captured. But that sets off this underwater arms race. And the OSS is tasked with developing that technology in 1942, the, um, which we don't have. And we don't have the tech either. We have nothing. And OS and Donovan, they go to Donovan and say, develop it. And Donovan goes to um, a very interesting individual. His name is HGA Woolley, who is the liaison officer for the British for the British Navy in Washington, D.C. And he interacts with, with Donovan and Donovan pulls him over from the British side, but he's also an American too. And he's a screenwriter for Paramount in California. This, but he, in World War I, he was highly decorated and he, was a, he had some commando experience in 1940 with the British Navy, um, commandos I should say. Um, and uh, he's tasked with standing up this group and they bring in Christian Lambertson to develop the tech. And they, they, they also bring in another guy, by, um, another individual who's developing diving apparatus since he was a teenager too. And they sort of have two competing devices together. And it's, it's actually Christian Lambertson's device that is tested and approved at the, um, at the Shoreham Hotel on November 18th, 1942 and it's it's there that begins the story of the oss maritime unit and the story of of the precursor to the navy seals where they develop the idea of a team concept they develop um they bring in it's quite fascinating in um in first seals they bring in um hga woolley brings in his close friend who is a guy by the name of Jack Taylor, who's a dentist from Hollywood, California. Dr. Jack Taylor is not your average dentist, dentist at all. He sailed halfway around the world by himself, dug his way out of a gold mine. This guy's an incredible adventurer prior to the war. And Wooly brings him in and it's Jack Taylor that actually tests the rebreather that day on the, on the 18th of, of November, 1942 in the pool. And um, it moves around. And uh, he becomes their first real operative behind the lines too. It's an incredible story. Jack Taylor is the first OSS operative to be sent over to the, the Near East. He's, he operates out of Egypt. You guys are familiar with the, the movie, The Guns of Navarone. This oh, yeah. is that time period. Those islands are being um, occupied by the Germans. There's, a, there's an incredible parachute operation that, it, that takes place in 43 where the Nazis occupy one of the islands and all of this stuff is taking place and Taylor is running guns and agents by um, something called the Kayeki, which is a small uh, Greek uh, shipping vessel in and out of these islands, then moves into um, Bari, Italy, where they conduct ops into Yugoslavia and Italy. And Jack Taylor is a total adrenaline junkie. He wants to have the toughest mission he can find and asked for the deepest, you know, mission into the into the Third Reich, and um, 
they, they develop a, a special team to go into um, Austria and um, it's, it's a suicide mission. He's, he's given um, four or th th four individuals that are known as deserter volunteers. They're short of people that have German language specializations and specializations in the area. They pull POWs out of the POW camp and train them up for his team. And they jump into Austria. German soldiers who had deserted from the German army. Yes. And had no actual known loyalty to the United States. They just deserted from the German army. They, they deserted. And then they, they would do a number of tests on these guys to test their loyalty. And, you know, for the most part, they were pretty. So it, re it really is like the Dirty Dozen where like the first scene starts off with Lee yeah. Marvin in the prison recruiting the guys. They're going in there and they're trying to find out. And most of these guys are interesting. They pull guys out that are hardcore socialists that have a, notch, a natural affinity against the Nazis. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, or they're communists. I should say they're communists. Yeah. Um, and they, they don't like um, the Nazis for whatever reason. And uh, they then form up with, the, uh, with this OSS team and he drops in. But it's a disaster. Just like Stephen Hall, the radio is lost. Well, they didn't have a radio because it dropped into a lake. Can you tilt your uh, screen down real quick a little bit? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Taylor goes in there with the team without – the radio's gone. So they're did running they, around. Did they lose it on the op? Did they lose it, it on the They lost it on the op. It parachuted in. It was in a bundle, and it went. In, they think it went into the lake okay. that was nearby, and they could never retrieve it. They spent days trying to retrieve that radio. Sure. And they then spent two months evading the SS – and he was gathering actionable intelligence on, you know, all the positions in and around the area. But it was one of the deserter volunteers that blew it. It's, it's kind of comical in many ways. He had a girlfriend there. He was trying to, he was trying to like um, have some sort of relationship with a German girl in the village. And it blew <laughs> their cover. And the SS swarmed in on him. And, and Taylor and all of, the, all of these deserter volunteers rounded up. And um, Taylor was sent to Mauthausen concentration camp wow. as an American. And that's part of that story. And it's incredible. He builds the crematorium in Mauthausen. Holy shit. And he's on the death list every day for weeks. What, why did they send him to a concentration camp and not a POW camp? Because he was a spy? Because he was, a, he was considered a spy. And they, um, they tortured him. I mean, he, he was initially in the hands of the Gestapo. And uh, then he was eventually, then he, he was in their hands uh, for a number of weeks and then sent to, to Malthausen. This, uh, this actually reminds me also of something else I wanted to bring up with you was that the OSS was interesting uh, in the sense that they also recruited quite a few women, including field operatives. Absolutely. There are a number of, of women. I mean, I, I get into this in um, my book, Operative Spies and Saboteurs, where I interviewed all of the operational women that were out there. And wow. It's everything from line crossers that were women that were just, they would just infiltrate by, by, you know, walking in to German lines to by parachute or by boat. In some cases, it's a variety of, of uh, women operatives that were really quite um, exceptional. I mean, then you had, um, you, you had some very famous OSS women like Julia Child, for instance, right. who was an OSS, it was in the OSS. Yeah, French, Frenchie Edmondson. Uh, what Virg was Virginia? Virginia um, Hall is one of the most yeah. decorated women 
who receives the, um, the Distinguished Service Cross. She's known as the limping lady because she has a wooden leg. Right, right. And um, she drops in and literally is, oper- is an operative behind the lines and is hunted by the Nazis, has a price on her head. So, so what was Donovan, like, obviously he was very egalitarian, very, well, like he, he saw people as a resource, like, Absolutely. It, you know, in terms of what they could bring to the table. Um, and it wasn't based on, on gender or any, I mean. No, they had, there were African-American, I mean, there were, for instance, there were many professors that were, there were, after, Ralph Bunch, for instance, was, was, was in the OSS. There were others, very much so. I mean, they're very, uh, very much ahead of their time. You know, looked at the, 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 the ends justified the means. They, were, they weren't looking at. Um, you know, any kind of race type thing or, or stereotypes, they were looking at what, who could be the most effective. Right. What can they bring to the table, basically? Right. Fascinating. How, how did Bill, how did Bill Donovan, like, how did he work with the government? Like, was he, did he have kind of free reign? Was he shut down a lot? Was he at odds with them? Well, yes. It's, as Donovan always said, some of his greatest enemies were not only the Nazis, but also within Washington, D.C. <laughs> And one of his greatest, his greatest enemies was J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, and who looked at him as a rival and was constantly trying to sabotage him. That's, that's interesting because Hoover was focused internally, domestically, you know, his little war against communism and everything. Why, why, was he, uh, why did he see Donovan as a rival since he was operating, you know, almost exclusively externally? What was going on was that, there was, that they, they saw the future. They saw that the war was coming to an end. And that there was going to be a need for some sort of an intelligence apparatus mm, okay. to deal with the Russians. And it was Hoover that was sniping at him. But even the president himself sort of stuck the dagger in Donovan's back and leaked stories of a so-called American Gestapo that would arise at the end of the war. Which president are we talking about at this point? President FDR. The same person who who recruited Donovan. Yeah, they leaked different stories out, and um, it would be President Truman that would actually disband the OSS in October, nineteen forty-five. And and why why were they disbanded? And then what happened after that? Like how long before they stood up the CIA? It would be a couple years afterwards. But that there, the, what's interesting is some elements of the OSS still were were intact including, for instance, the State Department's um, intelligence and research arm that would, would, st- would, be, would stick around. And there were other, some other elements that would, that would remain, but then they would stand it up again um, a couple of years later with the CIA in 1948. I mean, there was, there was a legitimate concern there. I mean, there was infiltration by the Russians of the organization. But at the same time, there was a lot of um, institutional knowledge and uh, great individuals that were lost too within that time period. Now, when the CIA stood up, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the people or a, a percentage, a good percentage of the people from the OSS were brought in, but were then excised during the Carter administration, correct? Hard to say. Um, yeah, there were a lot that did, that did come over um, and then some that didn't. Um, and then during the Reagan administration, for instance, when Bill Casey came back, Bill Casey was the great, um, he was in charge of European operations, uh, specifically something called secret intelligence uh, in Europe. 
was brought back. He brought back a lot of the old guard that he knew. Really? Okay. The USS because I know, the, I know the, that Carter kind of deboned the CIA with his idea that, that the it was all going to be tech. He really supported the NSA. He thought that human... Well, there's also the Church Commission and other... Uh, right. Yeah. ...that take place that, um, you know, that, that, that look at the... There were a number of abuses, too. Sure. That were... Um, that you know that, that took place and uh, that are that are examined. Sure, certain elements of the CIA certainly run rampant. Now, were those were those uh, generally members of uh, or former OSS people, or were they like more kind of the a new intelligence paradigm that had? No, no, no. I think that's hard to answer. That I don't, I don't, I don't think I can. You know, I, I don't think there's a way of pinpointing that exactly. Yeah, fascinating. Fascinating. Let's talk about Washington's Immortals a little bit. Yeah, that's sure. fascinating. This is uh, this is a very special book to me. Um, this is every book I've written. I've written twelve books now. Has found me in one way or another. And what I mean by that is, the story has found me, and that's that's certainly the case with Washington's Immortals. Um, it's two thousand ten, and um, a battalion commander from. We were one. Um, he was up in New York with me at the same time. Yeah. And said, hey, Pat, do you want to go to the Met and just sort of hang out? I said, no, let's, let's do a battlefield tour of Brooklyn. And for those of you that are in New York City, there are so much, there's so much history that's in plain sight that's worth exploring and seeing. And, and my favorite place is is the Battle of Brooklyn in many ways because we started out at Greenwood Cemetery and this is a special a special place. It's not only a cemetery, but it's also a battlefield. It's the battlefield of one of the largest battles of the Revolutionary War, but also one of its most crucial battles. The battle is, uh, the, the cemetery is filled with who's who um, of New York. It's Boss Tweed's buried there. There's Civil War generals, but it's also a battlefield. And we walked up to Battle Hill, which was the focal point of the Battle of Brooklyn on August 27th, 1776. This is only a month after the Declaration of, basically a month after the Declaration of Independence is signed. And the British launch one of the largest um, operations of the war. And our forces are out on uh, Gowanus Cemetery, uh, on the heights of Gowanus, which is Greenwood Cemetery, and they're being flanked by um, a flanking force led by Cornwallis and Henry Clinton and others, Lord Howe, through the Jamaica Pass, and they're coming around and they're going behind Greenwood Cemetery. And the men in my book, um, Washington's Immortals, or the Maryland Line, literally had to fight for their lives back towards their main bivouac area, which is a stone house. Um, and as they're fighting their way through that, the entire, a large portion of the American army is being surrounded on the heights of Guanas. And these men mount a desperate and suicidal charge, rear guard action. An American Thermopylae, which one historian's described as an hour more important in our history than any other. They opened up a gap in the lines that allowed the American army a bulk of it to escape. And it's, it's, it's near this stone house that the, the action takes place. 
when they charge multiple times into the lines, um, they're hit with canister and grape. And this is, think of a shotgun. You know, these are balls of, of, of iron that are the size of a golf ball that are, that are piercing um, the flower of, of the South in, in Maryland. These are the men, some of the wealthiest families of the South. Um, these are men of, their motto is men of honor, family, and fortune. And they, they charge multiple times into the house and, um, and also, also to their death and allow um, much of the, uh, the army to escape. And as we went down to the stone house, we went to an area, um, the Michael Raleigh um, American Legion post, which is about, a, about two blocks away. And at the time, this is 2010, there was a rusted old sign that said, here lie 256 continental soldiers, Maryland heroes. And it's their mass grave is somewhere in and around that area. And I became obsessed with the story behind the sign. Who were these guys? You know, what is the story? And it, you know, it, it's a story like, like so many American units, including the Marine Corps. It's a story that began on a weary day in a tavern where men of family, fortune and honor come together to, um, to swear allegiance to one another that they will fight the British in 48 hours notice. They will arm themselves with the best equipment that money can buy and they train. This is in 1774 for whatever is out there. And they became one of the greatest fighting regiments of the American Revolution. They also become the special ops link here is the light infantry. And this story is told really for the first time in Washington's Immortals, where these men are the backbone of the light infantry and they fight um, everywhere. They fight for seven years of war. In the north and the south, they're at Cowpens, for instance, where they changed the, the tide of the war. Um, they're at Camden, they're at Guilford Courthouse. It's, it's really quite an incredible story. I love the, uh, also the story about the, the battle for Brooklyn, where, you know, Washington, of course, is famous for retreating. And where they uh, retreat across the East River, they have to evacuate and give up Brooklyn. And that whole deception campaign that they had, lighting campfires to deceive the British, while they got basically the entire army across the East River overnight. Well, that's that's an area of uh, great expertise of mine. Let's put it that way. Um, and um, but what what happens there is is quite interesting. Um, it's it's August twenty seventh. This battle unfolds. These men are able to escape into entrenchments in Brooklyn Heights, and the British army is swarming at them. But what happens is the Marylanders chew up price, priceless daylight, and they're not able to necessarily assault those fortifications because it's more in the afternoon. There's also the looming battle at Bunker Hill, where Lord Howe loses just literally hundreds of men. And he's not really necessarily willing to make that sacrifice. But if he had, the war could have been over. They would have probably taken 10,000 American troops and captured Washington. Um, but they pause. And what happens is the next day, a nor'easter sets in, a massive rainstorm. The British army then begins a series of entrenchments around Brooklyn Heights, and they start to move closer and closer. And Washington has a decision to make. Do I stand and hold or do I do retreat? And every available boat is gathered from, <laughs> from Manhattan 
and what it's quite a remarkable story. The Marblehead men, John Glover's Marblehead men, bring the army across. But what what happens is um, a number of atmospheric miracles take place. Um, <laughs> the um, that the, no, ship, the British ships were not able to get up the East River because they're the not winds. able to get up the East River because the the wind doesn't blow favorably on the British sails. Had they been able to get behind the American defenses, it would have been game over. The wind doesn't blow properly. But also suddenly that night, a miraculous fog sets in and smooths <laughs> the movement of the American army and Glover's uh, men as they transport 10,000 Americans. The American Dunkirk cake takes place. It's an incredible story right under the noses of the British Army. <clears throat> but here, there's so many things that take place that are miraculous. A British, I mean, there are loyalists that are within Harlem Heights that see what's going on. They literally send a slave to tell the British what's going on. But the slave speaks broken Dutch <laughs> and is not able to communicate what's going on. There's all these other things that take place, one thing after another. And, um, you know, the, the miracle of, of the evacuation takes place and we're able to move uh, 10,000 men off of, of Harlem High, or I mean, of uh, Brooklyn Heights into to Manhattan. It's it, an it, incredible story. It, it's amazing when you think about like the history of the United States. Oh yeah, the Revolutionary War happened. The Americans fought the British, but it wasn't all the Americans. It wasn't even a majority of the Americans or the people in America. And then, and then all these things happen like you're talking about. I mean, because... New York, was it still New Orange at that point in time? It was still a Dutch... Uh, no, it was, it, these are Americans that are doing all the fighting. I mean, it, you've got, as the war goes on, it, it's quite interesting. I mean, we are so lucky <laughs> in so many ways that we were able to, to win our independence. And it was not only because of, you know, the efforts of many Americans, but it was also we were fighting other Americans, yeah. Had the British Empire exploited that properly, that division, we would have lost. Yeah. Some of our toughest fights were, were, were against were a lot of them, were loyal. There were a lot of colonists or Americans who wanted to remain a part. We were dealing with an American Civil War, which right. I, you know, I really cover in, this is our first Civil War. I really capture that in Washington's Immortals because within the families of the regiment, there are divided loyalties. They're the fathers of some of these men are hardcore loyalists. I mean, one of my, my main characters says, I'd rather die in a patriot's grave than, you know, wear the crown of England. That's how, you know, and his father is an ardent loyalist who disowns him. This happens you, over and over. If you think about all those guys who died on the prison ships off the coast of Manhattan, Absolutely. they could have they thrown in the towel and gone over to the other side. Many of the many of the men in the the um, the so-called Maryland 400 or Washington's Immortals were likely captured and were placed on those warships, those British ships, where upwards of of ten thousand or more were killed on those ships. It's an incredible story that's largely unknown. There's this there's a uh, a British monument in Green Park for those men and the thousands because the bones. What would happen is. They would die of disease and their bones were just thrown overboard and they would wash ashore and thousands upon thousands of bones were just gathered and they were placed in this monument. 
That's amazing. Hey, Patrick, I just, I, I was looking down. I, I wanted to pull up our text messages from that period of time because I distinctly remember it. And it, this is uh, August 28th, 2012. Dave, I'm up in New York City. This is my next uh, project in your hood. You linked a New York Times article. I said, very cool. How am I going to be here? Day or two heading to the library. This has been an obsession for two years doing the first Band of Brothers on Revolution. On the That's Revolution. exactly what this book is. It's the first time that it's really ever been done. Um, it's a breakthrough book. It's It's gone through um, about 25 reprintings. It's best-selling book. And this is um, Washington's Immortals we're talking about. Yeah. And it's a band of brothers on these men. And, and it's the enlisted men as well as the officers. And it's told through their eyes. And I also tell the story of the British, too. And, and how, how is this told through their eyes? Is it no, it's told through. Long? That's a very good question, uh, Dave. This is told through um, something called pension applications, diaries, and letters. The pension applications, there, there are, I use thousands of sources uh, for this book. There's, there's literally, I think, 3,000 endnotes in this book. It's all primary sources. But a lot of it was something to do with a, called a pension application. And if you were lucky enough to survive the Revolutionary War, you could go down to the local courthouse and swear under oath what you saw and did to prove that you were there. And in some cases, it would be detailed. Like it would be in a detailed description of the experience. Other times it'd be like, yeah, I was at the Bell of Guilford Courthouse or Cowpens or Long Island. But within those little nuggets, I was able to mine those nuggets. I was really one of the first people to do that. This is one of the great oral history projects of the American Revolution that's unknown. And they're out there. So I, I stripped all this stuff out. Um, in my next, in the, the next book I wrote, I literally rebuilt the regiment using the pension files and the muster rolls wow. and, and, and built it up from the ground up and, and, and was able to determine who the characters of the book were. And it was largely in their own words. It's incredible stuff. Um, but for Washington's Immortals captures that level of detail. It's a granular level of detail. But it's also narrative history. So this thing is, it feels like a, it's cinematic. It's very um, a fast read and uh, it's, it's dynamic. Well, Jens, uh, go ahead, Dave. I, I was just gonna say, um, you weren't trained as a writer. You, you're trained as a historian and then in finance. How, did, how has your writing evolved over the years? I, I completely developed my own style and um, my own technique. In my own approach, I'd say that it's the one thing that I'm a natural at in my, and it's not necessarily so much the writing as it's the history in the way that I tell it. The, the storytelling aspect. Of yeah. It. And I, it's something that I developed over time and, and I'm very much, um, my tech, my technique is I'm an isolationist. I'm, a, I'm an island of one. I don't go hang out with other writers. I don't see their other styles. I develop my own. I, I do my own thing. I go, I go explore my own places. I come up with my own ideas. And, and that's, it's all about ideas and, and coming up with an idea that, um, I mean, ultimately will sell books, but also that ultimately also tells an important story. What I typically do, what I, my books are typically a smaller story that's untold that tells a larger important story on, on who we are as Americans in one way or another. And it's fascinating because I know you've told me before 
Like, I think sometimes people go, well, how do I become a writer? Or how do I do this? Or how do I do that? And you've told me I haven't worked in over 20 years. That's true. Um, when I first started this thing, I mean, I spend a lot of time doing what I do. Right. I mean, I spend like 80 hours and stuff. You know, I mean, I'm, I, I'm always doing this stuff. Yeah. But it's not work to me. I love what I do. And I always said to myself, if this becomes work, I'm done. I don't carry a briefcase. I don't do all that stuff. I don't like to wear a suit. I just, you know, I, this is fun. And I, and it's not only fun, but I like to learn. And when I'm, I, I challenge myself. I don't, I go outside of my. Yeah. That's what know, keeps it interesting. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just going to do, I've done, I've written seven books on World War II. I'm willing to, I told the editor that I want to do a book on the revolution. They're like, no, we got to do another world. I'm like, no, fine. Went to another publisher. I'm willing to take a, a risk and a chance on, on everything I write. And um, is it the mystery? Is it the, the no, it's the journey. I love the journey. I love to, to explore this stuff. I love to, you know, feel the history. I like to get into the weeds like, let me give you an example. You know, I'm, he's I'm he's like, coming so, back with his ear necklace. I'm so into the, I'm, I'm so into the I week. knew it. You know, this is, this is an 1860 Colt Army. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm all over this stuff. It's not just any Colt Army, though. It's, it's identified to Nathan Fogg, 2nd Mass Cavalry. You know, I know the whole history of this, this, this weapon, this, this piece, which he carried right around my house. You know, I, I, I get into this, I get into the weeds and the minutia. I love, I love this stuff. And it's, it's not just the object, it's, it's something that, that's a piece of history that was carried by somebody that was there. I mean, I, I, I walk the ground, I get, you know, I get into the weeds. And Pat, I know you don't want to say too much too soon, but your next, do you want to say a little bit about your next book that you have coming out? The next book is I'm going back to the Revolutionary War. And it's, it's an extraordinary story on the revolution. And it's, yeah. it's a story that, that a, a, a group of men that, that literally saved our country multiple times and, um, and created so many things that we, uh, that we know now it's 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 special and i i can't get too too far yeah, into it we, we understand you don't you yeah. don't want to scoop it while you're while you're waiting for publishing yeah. or it's it's done though yeah it so, is a situation where i li literally i took a group of men and it begins in 1769 before the revolution and it's their story these they're the main springs behind the idea I mean, that's a big part of what I write about. It's about ideas. I mean, ideas that can change the world. And, you know, these are, these are men that had an idea that changed the world. So uh, I think, you know, we're two hours, two hours and 15 minutes in. We should probably start wrapping it up. I, I just want to hit you with a, a couple quick questions before we, uh, before we move on. Uh, Andrew says, uh, I have Washington's Immortals. Can you talk about the foreign intelligence operations that Leslie Groves ran as a part of the Manhattan Project? Um, Groves had a, an, an aspect of, of, of that project called the Alsos. And um, 
that's that's one of my favorite aspects of of the OSS interaction with Groves, and I wish I had it because um, I, I wear it every day, and I just don't have it on me now. But I have a I have an 85 year old scapula that I wear everywhere every day. I just it happens to be upstairs right now because I took a shower before I went on, and um, it was given to me by Frank Monteleone. And Frank Monteleone was the radio operator from Mo Burke. If you ever saw that movie, Catcher Was a Spy, this is the story of Mo Burke. And Mo Burke was uh, Grove's guy to go after Nazi tech, specifically Nazi nuclear tech. And one of their missions involved um, killing Warner Heisenberg. And they sent in Berg. They sent in Berg, I mean, I, I've got some with Monteleone in, in Italy to, to gather uh, tech on, um, on the nuclear program in outside of Rome, really an amazing story. But then is, but the greatest op was probably in, um, in Switzerland where they sent in Berg to assassinate Heisenberg. They gave him a pistol and they said, um, you have the, the ability to determine whether or not you think Heisenberg's a threat or not. So Berg wow. went and sat in as a student uh, to, in all of Heisenberg's little the lectures, it's kind of amazing that the Nazis allowed um, Heisenberg out of Nazi Germany in 1944, 1945 um, to conduct these, these lessons, but they, they let him in there. And Berg was, was skilled. Uh, he spoke eight different languages. He was a brilliant guy. And he went into the lectures and um, stalked Heisenberg for several days and then walked one night behind Heisenberg with the pistol and made the decision not to kill Heisenberg, which was the right decision. I mean, Heisenberg, the Germans weren't that far ahead, um, you know, of us, that they were, they were a threat. Uh, and Andrew asked, did you consult on the Medal of Honor games, video games, I guess? I did. Um, oh, really? I, yeah, I was, I, was, uh, I was a consultant for those games. I was also a consultant for Band of Brothers when that, before <laughs> that came out, I was a, historical consultant for those guys. I did like all the research in the archives and the stuff on weapons and stuff. But yeah, I did, um, I helped do storyboards for uh, one of the Medal of Honors. And it turned out to be, it turned out to be a, 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 um, a series that they never did. It was gonna be a Cold War OSS Medal oh, of Honor. Shit. Really? Very yeah, good. at the time they never did it. They went to, um, they went to the Afghanistan series. I think after that, and then I don't think Medal of Honor's around anymore. It's been taken over by Call of Duty, but yeah. That would have been really cool. But there is, I guess there is some sort of a Cold War thing out there with Call of Duty, right? Is there? Yeah, I believe so. I, I don't uh, know. And then, could you take Rick Atkinson in a fight? <laughs> Andrew asks. Well, I don't know if I'd want to, but let me just say, I was a uh, college wrestler, uh, Division One, so. <laughs> all right all right one carl sestari they could ever go there what what one final question uh before we wrap up and i think this is a good one way to end it uh johnny asks do you have any plans to take on jsoc or socom history i'd love to i i uh if i was uh given the the proper access i think i could tell that story properly patrick you know uh, earlier it was asked, uh, or, or I think Jack asked you if you if you saw a difference in, in the modern generation and, and, and the OSS guys. 
I mean, you spent time, even though they weren't technically a special operations unit, you did go in with Marine Recon, but in Fallujah, it was, it was a line infantry unit. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people take digs at millennials, right? The millennials this, millennials that, but millennials have also been the ones primarily fighting our wars for the last 20 years. When you spent time with those, with the Marines in Fallujah, and then you compare that to the, like the men you interviewed from the OSS and Marlins Marauders, did you see much of a difference in the mentality and the capability uh, in combat readiness and anything in those, in those disparate groups of people? Not with the, not with the Marines. No, I was, I was just blown away by, by those. So it's not so much a generational thing as just a, a warrior thing, or I don't want to put words in your mouth, but. I, I, uh, no, I, I think that those were just incredible warriors. I, I, um, and the sacrifices that they made are in some cases greater than that other generation because they had to go to back to Afghanistan or Iraq nine or 10 times and did it, you know, nobody knew. I had guys like one of my um, close friends, John Stokes, who literally lied to his parents that he wasn't going to Iraq. He was going to, um, you know, overseas somewhere in a Marine float and um, had to beg his way into the Marine Corps for another six month extension just to stay on, even though they were going to kick him out. And um, it cost him his life. Wow. See that, you know, multiple times. It's a silent generation that nobody knows about of sacrifice. A, a silent <laughs> now, they don't tell their stories to anybody in most yeah. cases, unless you were there. I mean, the ones that were really there, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. They won't talk about it. Some, sometimes they're, they're afraid somebody's going to say they have PTSD or something or label them incorrectly. Because a lot of times people just don't get it. Right. And, and I'm sorry, there's an, sorry, there's an echo. Yeah. Um, and there's still a large, you know, that whole sort of post-Vietnam mythos of somebody with post-traumatic stress going, you know, just going postal and Charlie's in the wire, man. Like that's still very, a very prevalent thought amongst civilians. Uh, and so post-traumatic stress is still very um, taboo. It's still very, you know, even, even like saying you're a veteran or a combat veteran, I think is something that uh, works against you a lot of times in the civilian world at this point. I think that's true. And it's a very unfortunate thing. It's a misunderstanding. Yeah. And the, the fact is that uh, these people owe their freedoms to those sacrifices, which are unsung in many cases. And they have the luxury of not actually having to know that. Right. So anyway, Enough with the maudlin. <laughs> yeah, guys. Um, you know, thanks everyone for joining us live tonight. I hope everyone is, uh, you know, using it to take their mind off of the coronies and everything else going on in the world and all that drama. Um, thank you so much, Patrick, for joining us tonight. Uh, all, you can find all of Pat's books on Amazon. They're all there. Uh, you can get them on Kindle, so you can have them delivered, you know, right to your uh, 
right to your computer digitally while you're, you know, socially distancing yourself. So it's a good time. Do you have audiobooks for all of them? Yeah. Um, every, yeah, all these books are audio. You can, you know, and it's a great thing is you can just download it on your iPhone and listen to it in the car when you're going to places or wherever. Nobody's going anywhere now. Not right, not right now, but in the future, yeah. yeah. You can listen to it at home. <laughs> on your way to the grocery store? Well, if yeah. you're not in New York. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, and I would love to have you on again, Pat, sometime to talk about the yeah, China sure. from so, India Theater. Really, uh, I really, I, I found it very compelling. Um, you, you guys are, you did a great job. Thank you. No, thank really you. Enjoyed. And yeah, we didn't we didn't really have a chance to talk about you know uh, the China Burma India Theater, and I hope we do that again some other time. The other thing we could talk about is Dog Company Second Ranger Battalion. That's yes. my other book on Point to Hawk and Hill Four Hundred and the Hurricane Forest. I mean, forest. I mean that's forest. I mean that's I mean that's really amazing stuff that I think your viewers would like to to know about yeah. too. Yeah, no, no, I'd be I'd be what somebody's what? echoing. Yeah, I don't know. Hot mic, hot mic. Oh. Let me plug these in and see if that works. I don't know if it's me. Uh, so anyways, um, yeah, again, thank you, Patrick, for coming on. We'll do it again sometime. Um, everyone who joined us on the show, thank you. Uh, in the meantime, if you take a look down in the description, you'll find links to you know all of our stuff. There's a subreddit. There's a Patreon page if you're interested in supporting the stream and keeping us going. Um, you know, like and share the video, give us the little thumbs up and, and share it with your friends and all that helps this thing build some traction. So yeah. we really appreciate it. And, and definitely check out Pat's stuff. You, Pat, you also have quite a bit of stuff on the History Channel uh, on YouTube. Oh yeah, there's dozens of documentaries. For instance, We Were One is um, Shootout D-Day Fallujah, for instance, which the Marine Corps uses a training film where they, the actual... Marines that I was with, we reenacted those ambushes that I talked about. You know, they did that reenactment. So everything is hyper-realistic. Yeah. Um, we did the one on, on the Korean War called Against the Odds, which is you know, Bloody George, it's called. It's um, really an incredible story of George Company and the Korean War. And, and the, then, uh, the Origin of the Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, it's called The Real Inglorious Bastards. And they interviewed Fred Mayer, and I narrate a large portion of that and yeah it's it's they they really it's a dramatic documentary so it's a lot of it's film so you feel like you're there it's quite a, it's won multiple awards uh and thank you dj and thank you uh london we really appreciate it guys we, we really do appreciate your donations it helps us keep going um and patrick man thank you so much That's a, it was a whirlwind that was a great i, I really enjoyed it thank you guys thank you that was uh, a great that was a great conversation with friends yeah, yeah we'll do and, it again yeah, and uh, if you haven't joined our Patreon, please uh, join our Patreon. A buck a month will give you access to uh, great uh, exclusive content. Uh, Pat's going to do a, a, uh, a give us a, a talk about his interview with with a true man, myth, and legend who most people never heard about. I mean, these are the people movies should be made about. Uh, uh, amen. You know, um, and subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. Hit the notification bell to make sure you get our notifications and. YouTube will randomly decide if it lets you know when we come online. And last thing, very last thing, I promise this time. Next episode, next Friday, my friend Erin, she is a woman who served as a CIA ops officer over in, uh, let's just say, some hostile fire zones during the war on terror. And uh, I don't think she's ever been interviewed like this before. It's I'm really excited for it. So we'll have that for you guys next Friday. Yeah. 
Thanks, everybody. We really appreciate it. And we will talk to you soon.